This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by First Light, creating proven, versatile hunting apparel from merino base layers to technical outerwear for every hunt. First Light, go farther, stay longer. All right, everybody, joined today by a super special guest. Been talking about this one for a long time. Jack Horner. John R. Jack Horner. <laughs> how sick are you hearing about the uh how sick are you hearing about uh Jurassic Park? A little bit, not at all? Well, I think I've had enough of it, if that's what you mean. That's what I mean, like, because here I am sitting here like as a, a, a as a host, right? I'm in a real bind. Cause I'm like uh everyone on the planet, everyone on the planet. Um, knows about that, and you've got to be pretty. When did that movie come out? Nineteen ninety-three. You have to be. Either you love it, or you hate it. <laughs> the people are like, you know, Jack Horner, <laughs> Jurassic Park. You burned out on it. I don't know. You know, I've seen it. I, you know, I don't know. It was fun to make. It was fun to work with Steven Spielberg. It was, you know, fun to work with everybody, but, you know, I like my science better. <laughs> You're saying it's not representative? <laughs> Teach their own. So, if you, so you, you weren't tempted after doing that. You weren't tempted to be like, you know what? Piss on this uh, science. I'm going to go into the. I'm going to go into the movie consultant business. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't have traded my job for any of theirs for anything in this world. Hmm. All right, so you know what I'm going to do? This is just by way of introduction. I'm not going to mention that shit at all. Okay. Anymore. <laughs> Excellent. So, <laughs> my, uh... I just had to get it out of the way. Listen, you know how, uh, who's the guy that wrote all the songs that, that uh, Eric Clapton made famous? J.J. Kale? Okay. Right? J.J. Kale would write a song, and he'd do it, and no one would care. And then Captain Clapton would do it, and it'd be a big hit. So after a while, you'd start to think that J.J. Kale either hates Eric Clapton or likes Eric Clapton. And someone put it to him, and he's basically like, that shit made me a lot of money. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right? All the Clapton songs. Not that one about his kid in the window and all that, but most of the Clapton Clapt- songs were J.J. Kale tunes. Uh, moving on. Jack, we're going to talk about of some stuff that has nothing to do with your groove. But- okay. But it, you, please, because there might be some things you might want to weigh in because we're talking about some disease things. I don't know if you have a gen, if you're like interested in mammalogy at all. I I like all ologies. Oh, that's good. All right, ex- you're gonna, ex- you're gonna... except astro ology, astrology. Oh, like the kind where you like use it to the planets to pick your fate. Yeah, I, I was just I, about to I ask what your sign was, but I'll yeah. <laughs> I'll hold that back. is some dude. Have we covered off on astrology before? I'm not buying it. I, I, I'm going to go, uh, like, I know it's a, it's a rare opinion, but I'm not buying it. It, it has to do with the moon, Steve. <laughs> yeah, it does. That's right. You like the moon. But here's the thing, man. If I was going to make, if I was going to break the people of the planet into 12 groups, and these groups would help them figure out how their day was going to go, I would have groups like this. You'd be like, there'd be a group called, your father was an alcoholic and beat you. Okay? And then you're a... Your thing for the day would be like, today you'll probably have some trust issues, right? Uh-huh. And I would like have it go like that. Like, you're extraordinarily wealthy. And then it might be like, today you'll probably have some existential crisis. 
but you probably won't be too worried about finances. And it'd be like, and it would just be like so much more helpful. Yes, I would. Than some crazy shit about, you know what I mean? You should write a self-help book because that yeah, seems yeah, so I'm gonna break. I'm going to break the world's population into 12 groups. Every day those people will wake up, look, and they'll be like, oh, that's how today will go. Right? Yeah. It'd be like, you suffer from debilitating depression would be one of the signs. And then it'd be like, today's going to be rough. <laughs> Today's gonna be rough, uh, but it will end. <laughs> <laughs> Someday it'll all be over. Uh, oh, we're gonna promo. We're gonna promo our like our our tremendous proliferation of YouTube content. Where should we start? Source with Danielle Pruitt is just wrapping up. Dude, I just found out a thing about Danielle today that I want to talk about. So bad but i didn't check with her if it's okay to talk about it has to do with the it has to do with the very pugnacious very sensitive german hunting dog community Mm. oh is this something we've already tackled no it's new news about just how fussy how fussy and feisty yeah, like if her dog sneezed and lost its facial hair, it would be called a totally different dog and highly regarded by another set of very pugnacious German hunting dog aficionados. Yeah. Yeah. Like what happened to Snort, how Snort lost hair on its ear? They would come and they'd be like, um, they'd want to come execute Snort. Right. They're like, can because... you put her in a bag and <laughs> put her in a river? She no longer represents, you know. <laughs> right. You think? Those people would have got over that kind of thinking in the 30s. That's a hell of a but, retrieve, but look at that tooth. But I won't talk about it until Danielle says we can talk about it. But holy cow, it trumps all other crazy, fussy, feisty German hunting dog stuff we've covered. That's a tall order. Well, it, it it's a rich story, but she might be a little pissed if we talk about it. Uh, um, Yeah, so Sourced with Danielle Pruitt just wrapping up. Cal was on it. Cal, Cal explain it. You were on an episode of Sourced. Talk about that, please. Um, so, you know, Danielle is, is very food first oriented, very, uh, great at asking questions and, and finding out the why on what makes food good and interesting. And, um, I actually watched, uh, the last couple episodes last night and, um, yeah, yeah. Super fun and, and pick up. It's entertaining, but it's also educational if you, if you like to play around with with cooking wild game. So, like uh, one of my favorite episodes is the episode with uh, Lee Wei, and I love it's on that. dry age fish. Dry age fish, and um, there's it was hilarious because I was pulling out some reef fish from Hawaii that had been marinating in their own juices, <laughs> <laughs> and that was very high on the list of things not to do. In the episode. He wasn't real crazy about that. No. No. <laughs> no. Dry fish um, as fast as possible. He doesn't like it when you catch fish, put it in a Ziploc bag, and then it kind of thaws a couple times. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. then later you have your kids, you eat it with your kids with ketchup. That would, that would, that would be listed as not the way. Um, but yeah, great, great series, entertaining, really pretty, like very pretty food. Um, and then... You know, plenty of very pretty getting outside uh, and getting you in the mindset of how you get that food. Yep. 
Uh, we also got B-Side Fishing with our very own Joe Cermelli. So Joe, Joe hosts the Bent Podcast, and uh, season two of B-Side Fishing is out. Um, episode one was on Shad. Episode two is on Snakehead. Uh, snakehead Fish, which Joe's like a big snakehead apologist. Um, dude's funnier than hell. Love that guy. Check that one out. And then, right now, which is, which is uh, I'm super high on, is the One Week in November series. You boys, listen. You boys could have messed that whole thing up, but you didn't. How could have we messed it up? By all of you going out and not getting anything. <laughs> you guys tore a new one. Yeah, you guys like almost messed it up because you got shit too quick. Too many deer. <laughs> too, they get too many deer. Right. But, I mean, I mean are, not too many deer because it's, it's just like a deer per person, but still. It is, it is just whitetails, though. Yeah, so, no, yeah. You know. Just whitetails. Yeah. I didn't counter some mule deer on my hunts. So we got that. Give we, like give everybody the premise of one week in November. We have four hunters that kill five bucks across seven different states for one week in November. And Meat Eater hasn't done anything like this before, where they wrap up filming something, and ten days later it's on YouTube and available. So this was really like targeting the seasonality of November and being excited about the rut. By the time this episode comes out, episode one's in, one and two of One Weekend in November will be available. On the first episode, Tony gets us started by killing a mega eight-point buck in Minnesota. Really exciting Tony encounter. Peterson. Tony Peterson. That's correct. The other hunters on the show were me, Mark Kenyon, and Clay Newcomb. You, got, you know what you should have done is hired that dude that reads like, uh, at a time. Right. Mm-hmm. And it would have been one In a week. world. Yeah. <laughs> one week. Four states, something or something like, like that. that. Yeah, yeah. So I don't, I don't think you did a good job laying out the, just the whole premise, though. Mm. Like, okay, like a probably a C, C grade. Okay, I'll take another stab at it here. Okay. Everyone Ooh. likes to hunt whitetails. <laughs> lot they they live for the first week in November, right? America's most popular big game animal. America's most popular big game animal. During... If you're going to do it one week out of the year, you do it first week in November. All most the, of the country. It, you know, I know there's like some, yeah, there's some fluctuations and all that, and there's some variations and weather could impact it and blah, blah, blah. But mm-hmm. generally, if you had to like throw a, pick a calendar date range, that's the date range. Correct. Is there data out there that shows like the the one week out of the year where the, there's the most hunters in the woods? Yeah, so roadkill fertility studies have been done on does that were like smashed on the side of the road, and then they can date back to like when the fetus was conceived. Or whatever. And I think in the Midwest, they, on average, saw like November 13th as being the average. So we're hunting a little bit ahead of what would be like peak breeding. Oh, that's still... when most does get bred. Mm-hmm. When do most mule deer does get bred, do you know? I don't know. I don't know. And I, I surveyed 10 big buck killers like five years ago. I asked them what their favorite day of the rut is. And I think seven out of 10 picked a day between November 7 and November 10. So those first two weeks in November are the best two weeks for most whitetail hunters. November 13 is the main day they get fertilized. That was in, like, Indiana, which was pretty well representative of, you know, anything from New England to the West. You know, I think that uh, with humans, I think that the summer solstice score is real high. If you (laughs) remove, like, holiday stuff. No, I think it does. I think the summer solstice is a high score. It's when we're rutting. Yeah, if you were doing one about people, you'd call it one day in June. (laughs) One day in late June. That's good. Um... So we have, we have me hunting in Montana, Wyoming. But it's, it all plays out real time. That's right. There's like the day, mm-hmm. right? So you got four dudes in four different places, and like episode one is that day. That's right. Episode two is that day. That's right. 
And in like uh, episode why one, am I, day why, one, why am I doing better at explaining it? They'd be like, we saw, like, watch later. I'll be like talking about dinosaurs and Jack and be like, no shit. <laughs> <laughs> On day one, you're going to see me in Montana. You're going to see Clay Newcomb in Arkansas. You're going to see Tony Peterson in Minnesota and Mark Kenyon in Iowa. There you go. It's getting better now. That's right. You guys got deer crawling all over the place. We do. I really liked it. Me and, Chester, me and Chester watched it together. Oh, great. New episodes every Tuesday through the end of the year. Um, and in those seven episodes, I'll tell you this, we kill five bucks. So there's action to be had. I would also be a bad member of the production team if I didn't mention how awesome it is that this show is airing as quickly as it is. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah quick yeah. turnaround. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but, I mean, the produ- but it doesn't lose its production value. Not at all. No. no. I mean, Jack can tell you all about making movies. He loves it. Mm. But normally you shoot something, <laughs> you sit away. on it for a few months, years sometimes. Sure. That's right. But, I mean, it's getting turned around and... Uh, a week or two very talented crew every minute mattered to the point where like when we would get done filming november one memory cards were like getting overnighted back to the office so those folks could have them by the morning of november two the long and short of it really all the stuff we're talking about is uh subscribe to our youtube channel (laughs) and all the stuff will just get hand delivered to you and hold up and uh, while I'm, when I'm in Montana, Wyoming, I find some really special rocks, some petrified wood and agates that are going to enter the auction house of oddities as a one week in November giveaway. One rock that I find in Wyoming is one of the coolest pieces of petrified wood I've ever found. It's like almost 100% opalized. It's about the size of a softball. That's going to be in our auction house coming up later this year. Hmm. Wait, can you describe the opalized? Because I know what an opal looks like. So does it look like iridescent and maybe... It does. Jack, Jack is not. Yeah. And there, there's com- <laughs> there's common opal and there's uncommon opal, right? Well, I don't know. I don't know my opal. I don't know opal, but I know opalized, you know, wood and mm-hmm. sometimes even you know dinosaur bones can be opalized. Huh. Ooh, huh. Yeah, that'd make a hell of an huh. earring. <laughs> the the rock that I have, the piece of petrified wood, is common opal, so it's not very iridescent, um, but it still has like this very nice waxy. Ambery look to it. That sounds amazing. It's going to be in our auction there's, house. There's opalized, rock. there's opalized wood, um, right here in the valley. Spencer's going to find it now. That's right. Oh yeah, yeah. he finds this, all that junk. After this podcast wraps, <laughs> you're going to have to tell us what your opalized like a secret hotspot. Yeah, yeah. 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 Hunt, oh, I got a, I got it by the dump. I got a rock story. <laughs> I got a rock story that'll titillate you, Spencer. Mm, I'm in. I happened to be in a place where there was a big outcropping of green rock. There's a spring flowing out. Seth can back me up on this. There's a spring <laughs> flowing there. out, flowing with it looked like it looked like St. Paddy's Day. The water flowing out from under that thing was green. Mm. Seth? Yeah. I even remember rain, I, it was I even asked Steve, I was like, is this because that was going to be our our water source for the night. Is this slow? Remember, because we were playing <laughs> yeah. on camp. Yeah, he was a little nervous about drinking that green water. <laughs> I was like, and we had already caught in that. We were already calling that. Remember that old ad? Seth doesn't remember. There used to be an ad for Irish Spring Soap. I remember that. We're like this dude in like this old ratty wool sweater. He's got a jackknife out, and he cuts into the. He's like standing out by a spring, apparently in Ireland, and he takes his jackknife and cuts a hunk of the shaving of the soap off to show that it's apparently that the soap's uniform. Color, <laughs> and he's like, I can't. Who can do an Irish accent? I can't do any accent. No, I can't. <laughs> I might, might Phil? Be offensive. Come on, someone. <laughs> come on, Phil. 
Oh, it's a it's a chunk of soap. Okay. Do um do say uh say clean as a whistle. That's Irish Spring. Clean as a whistle. That's Irish Spring. <laughs> that was great. Yes. We found a spring that was a dead ringer. That like that you could have filmed that soap commercial at the spring we were on. In what part of the continent were you? North America. Upper. Okay. So <laughs> Upper North America. So the head, one of the headwaters of this was this green rock with green water oozing out of the hillside. I'm not lying. On top of it, well, I don't want to get too many details. Anyways, I pick up a hunk of this green rock. And I'm thinking, I don't know what it is, but I take up a little chunk. And then I got sick of carrying that chunk and busted that chunk and had a littler chunk to take home. But is it like copper? No. Okay. Listen. Okay. So... I give it to a buddy of mine who's kind of tied into the arts world, sculpture and whatnot. He gives it to a former student of his who's a jeweler. And I said, I wanted a piece for my wife and I wanted a piece for my daughter made out of that rock. He comes back all excited because it's a green Jasper. Green Jasper. And now I'm having necklaces made. One of them is Seth was going to too, but now Seth can't because he's like a homeowner and a cabin owner and can't be blowing all his money. Yeah. <laughs> but um, half elk ivory, half Jasper, but my daughter doesn't want a tooth in hers, she said. So she's just getting straight up Jasper. What do you think about that rock story, Spencer? I dig it. Good on you. All right, moving on to our recurring uh, meat eater auction house of oddities, which we're on number... Group five. Group five. Yep. Group five, people. So here, here's the here's the lineup on group five. Remember we had Dr. John Kropowski, the squirrel researcher on the podcast? His book, which is like, if you're a squirrel enthusiast, Clay Newcomb, North American Tree Squirrels. We have that book signed by Dr. John Kropowski. If you're not obsessed with tree squirrels, this is going to get you that way. I don't know why anyone would hope that they became obsessed with tree squirrels. Do you know what I mean? Hmm. It's like when you read about people, real quick. Mm -hmm. Think about this. Yeah. Please. If you read about things that are meant to increase one's sexual appetite, mm -hmm. like if you don't like if you don't have one, do you wish you did? Um. It'd be like it'd be like it'd be like here's a here's a pill that makes you want something you don't want now. Well, I think there's kind of a social pressure <laughs> to want to have sex. But I don't think there's a social pressure to want to love tree squirrels. You hear what I'm saying? Like, okay. if I said, no, no, let's say I said, let's say, Phil, do you wish you had a red sports car? Not particularly, okay. no. Oh, take this pill and you'll want a red sports car. I got you. Would you take the pill? No. Because you're not going to get a red sports car. <laughs> so here's the deal. So I'm saying, if someone's not obsessed with squirrel hunting, I don't know that they want to go get a book to make them such. Right. So this is God. more, what I'm speaking mm. to here is people that are already. Yeah. This is for people that are already obsessed with squirrel information. But it, but it could maybe convert you. Like I wasn't but, previously no. <laughs> obsessed with squirrels and now I'm obsessed with squirrels. But did you I, want to be obsessed with squirrels or was it an affliction? It. I fell into it. I fell into it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So back to what I was saying. <laughs> if you don't love squirrels, but wish you did, here's a great book for you. More appropriately, if you love squirrels and want to know everything about them, this is the one you want. Uh, also, another meat crafter. Now, we learned about, like, the meat crafter, our, 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 uh, the Stephen Ronella meat crafter, edition meat crafter from Benchmade. Like, when we sold them, we had a bunch. They sold. People loved them. Some people were like, that's a lot of money. And it was. But 
Then some guy on eBay sells one for like 1200 bucks. Feels so damn bad he wants to donate money to conservation when we called him out on it. Anyways, now they're super valuable. Real people are people are selling the damn things for twelve hundred dollars on eBay and getting thirty six bits. It's like an NFT you can hold in your hand. Yeah, Steve. it's like an NFT that you can cut your finger off with. <laughs> so, dude, when I was with Jordan Bud the other day, she saw mine. Now she really wants one. But we, we're putting them up on the auction house. Very valuable. They go for good money. Hybrid hunting fixed blade knife, like a boning knife, currently out of stock on Benchmade's website. But you can find one here at the auction house of oddities. Beautiful knife. Uh, we got a one week in November package. This is pretty sweet. It's a collection of gear and memorabilia that comes straight from the first season of our latest YouTube series, One Week in November, featuring our very own Mark Kenyon, our very own Spencer Newhart, our very own Tony Peterson, our very own Clay Newcomb. Spend seven days hunting in seven different states. Pieces include Mark's tethered phantom tree saddle and predator platform, Tony's prime bow, a bloodied arrow from Clay's whitetail buck and a collection of goods from Spencer, including some wood and agates he found during the hunt, his blaze orange meat eater vest, his benchmade hidden canyon hunter knife, his first light large dirt bag duffel, and a bullet he extracted from his whitetail buck. I'm going to bid on that sucker, man. Then we got Blue Hour, which is a ram painting. Inspired by the beauty, intensity, and undeniable presence of bighorn sheep residing in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. Artist, the flip-flop fleshers, fiance. That's some serious F alliteration, even though fiance. No, flip-flop fleshers, fiance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Man, she should start up. That's, she should change her uh, from Instagram. She's like K. Ray Johns. She should be the, the F, F. F's F quadruple quadruple F the F F F's F rolls or just, off, or rolls just off quad F, or just quad F she should rebrand so uh, Seth Morris our beloved Seth Morris the flip flop flasher he's getting married to the wildlife artist Kelsey Johnson takes beautiful pictures uses that to base paintings off of anyways blue hour beautiful one from hers 12 by 16 oil on canvas board beautiful then, check this one out. Polished, petrified wood bookends. Spencer Newharth and his wife, Shelby Huber, found some pieces of petrified wood near the Yellowstone River. 50 million years ago, these things were formed. Spencer and Shelby picked them. They hand cut them. They hand polished them into perfection. There are only two other sets of bookends like these in existence. One belongs to Spencer. The other belongs to me. So we usually say these are one-of-a-kind items. It's one of three. Spencer has a set. I complained about him having a set, and I didn't have a set. He gave me a set. Set number three is here. Pedestals of petrified wood cut flat on the bottom that you use as, like, bookends. They are choice. From our very own Spencer, the Rockhound, Newhearth. Check this one out. This is for you folks down in Atlanta or thereabouts or headed to Atlanta. A night for four at Kevin Gillespie's gun show restaurant in Atlanta. Enjoy a decadent dinner for four at Chef Kevin Gillespie's famed Atlanta restaurant gun show. During this interactive dining experience, chefs prepare meals in an open air kitchen and present them directly to patrons. 
and cocktails are crafted tableside on a rolling bar cart. The value of the dinner roughly estimates to 150 bucks per person, but it's like worth a ton more than that. Got a deer leg bottle opener. You heard that mm. right. Brody Henderson won this impressive bottle opener from Spencer Newhart during a highly competitive, uncomfortably heated white <laughs> elephant gift exchange at the 2019 oh, Meat yeah. Eater Holiday Party. I felt I was just holding this thing in my hand. This thing's hefty. Dude, hefty this thing is, hell. you could beat an intruder. To yeah. <laughs> and then if you had a bottle of beer, you'd open it. Spencer bought it online from an unnamed taxidermist for the occasion of our holiday party. It has opened many a beer at many a meat eater function. The hoof, dew claws, and fur are in perfect condition, and the opener is made of sturdy metal for even the toughest bottle opening jobs. <laughs> it's got a warning, though. Don't let your dog get a hold of it. <laughs> Not that it has any smell to it, but you know how dogs are. Finally, we got the giveaway. So the, the, at the auction house, the way the giveaways work is there's stuff you bid on, like with money, and you bid it and buy it, and there's stuff you just sign up and win for free. The Whitetail Gear Giveaway. So we did a giveaway with the DOS Boat 2 Boat. We did a giveaway with me and Seth's bottle of skunk essence. This is the giveaway now. Okay? Get yourself completely rigged up while you're waiting. Check out one week in November to see this gear in action. Uh, someone wrote in. We, we were covering off pretty heavy with when Durkin was on about Gordon Lightfoot and the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. You familiar with that song, Jack? I am. And we got, I got to humming some lines from Sundown. A guy wrote in. I don't know if, I don't know if like Gordon Lightfoot historians know this about Gordon Lightfoot. A guy wrote in about who Sundown is. Sundown, you bet. Did you play a little quick lick of that? Uh, whenever, Phil. Sure. Sundown, you better take care. If I find you've been creeping round my backstairs. Um. So this guy writes this. Recently on the podcast, Gordon Lightfoot has been a subject on some of the podcasts. That, that sentence could have been cleaned up. And as someone who is from Aurelia Gordon's hometown, I feel like I can shed some light on who Sundown likely is. Paul Donnelly, who has now passed away, was the local big drug dealer. One of the biggest in the province, or so he claimed. Paul was responsible for the import and export of illegal goods into the country direct from Central and South America. This is important to note because Paul and Gordon were friends of sorts. <clears throat> I always thought Gordon was a wholesome feller, but <laughs> wait till what comes next. <laughs> this guy says it very matter-of-factly. This is widely known. While Gordon was cheating on his wife with Kathy Smith... <laughs> now listen to this sentence this is, you want to talk about a sentence that makes its own gravy <laughs> while Gordon was cheating on his wife with Kathy Smith who infamously killed John Belushi and is thought to be Gordon's muse for sundown Paul Donnelly the drug dealer was also cheating on his wife with Kathy Smith hmm think about that you see how John Belushi got worked into this whole thing? He died of an overdose, right? So is this kind of a <laughs> that's saying that Kathy Smith was maybe supplying him with his eight balls or whatever? Yeah, am I, am I, I wrong? No, no, you're right. You're right. Can you I just do that in the Irish voice, please? I'd rather not. <laughs> he goes on to say, I know this because Paul was my grandparents' neighbor for 40 years. Yeah. Anyways, 
Thought you might like to know who Sundown probably was. <laughs> Sundown. Cream, I'll tell everybody about your first uh, your first muley buck. Oh yeah. Okay. Yes. So I got my first buck earlier this week. I I went on my first solo hunt. I'd been to this plot of public before. It's really not far from town. I wouldn't be giving. I wouldn't be going into a whole hell of a lot of detail personally. Oh, okay, fine. I, I, I wasn't going to say much more than <laughs> <Okay>. that, <laughs> except to except to say that it wasn't like in this area where I would be too afraid of bears, because um, then I probably wouldn't have gone by myself. Are you but a little bit paranoid? I am very paranoid. I didn't know that about yeah, you. Yeah, I'm pretty paranoid. Um, huh. I feel like I would probably have a heart attack. And die before being charged by the bear. Yeah. Really? I, I'm really that. Like, you don't want to die that way. No. But no. you don't mind and driving I, around. And, and I always feel like if I'm out hiking, even if I'm in an area, in an area where that's wooded, but that probably doesn't have bears, I have that sense of like maybe it's looking at me through the trees. Like, maybe it's there. Mm. I always have this like kind of. Yeah. A little anxiety. Annie's over it. Annie's very paranoid. You okay. guys can start like a paranoia support group. Yeah, and then we should <laughs> we shouldn't go out together and <laughs> expose ourselves and um yeah, so this was a place where so um I was familiar with this plot and I pulled up. There weren't any other cars. I was very happy. I was like Great choice, Corinne. You're going on a Monday. Don't do this weekend thing anymore. And so to describe the area, it's like it is a little more than left, right. And from front to back, it's and and you kind of have these. I got a question. Mm -hmm. Left, right from uh, traditionally we go north, north. uh, You would go north, south, east, west. Okay. Because so, left right would depend a hell of a lot on what way you walked into it from. There's <laughs> really only one way to walk in. This is also like overly descriptive of your spot. Yeah. Also. Okay. I would go in and edit out a lot of what you said. Yes. I've already found it on OnX. Exactly. <laughs> so, Corinne, you showed up to your spot. There was nobody there. Yeah. And then I wouldn't even get, you found a deer. It doesn't matter. <laughs> I'm trying to it's describe like, I'm trying to describe like proximity to town, dimensions, <laughs> what it's commonly used for. Okay, how many plots of public land are all of them? them. <laughs> Very near town. All of them too. Correct. Okay, fine. Fine. Yourself. Okay. <laughs> you showed up, there was nobody there. And you found deer. Phil, can you just do, because I want to keep this lesson in there. Can you just make it be like, beep, beep. I was already thinking that. (laughs) Okay, lesson learned. So, um, Good. Gracious. (laughs) So I. You know what? When I left my house, I checked my odometer. (laughs) Went 2.7 miles down. (laughs) Not to give it away. <laughs> uh, well, okay. Put the Onyx pin in the show notes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, exactly. Where, where Corinne got her okay, first so buck. Okay, so another way to do it would be like, there I was. There I was. Okay. So I was there. And um, I, I hiked up to one area. And, of course, when I got up to kind of this, this field area, 
an offense, all of the smart deer were on private land. So um, I decided to glass as far as I could see in the kind of opposite direction. And at about three quarters of a mile was one deer, kind of close to the other side of the fence, which was private. Um, But I think it was basically one deer on this entire plot. And I got very excited and it was kind of windy. So it was hard for me to see if there were antlers or not. And there were. So um, I went down way before I probably needed to. I started, I got on my belly to start to crawl. And there was a whole lot of uh, just crawling on my belly. And where I got to a spot where I felt like I was hidden enough lying on my belly and and being able to see like part of its antlers and part of its ears is where I stopped. And I, I could tell that he could sense something like he kept kind of he seemed to be alert but couldn't see where I was and um, at one point he moved such that I had maybe like a third broadside and this is this is a lesson that I will take going forward when I the next time I go target shooting I will not shoot bullseye targets I will and Cal I called Cal and we talked about this and I think it's so important for people to practice on deer targets to know where you need to aim based upon how you are positioned and how the animal is positioned. So everyone talks about broadside, but what if it's not broadside? And what if you can't get a broadside shot? What if it's nose to nose? Like where do you aim on the chest to get a heart or lung shot? If it's kind of back to you, backside is to you where do you so that that's really what i'll need you gotta um, you gotta crack open the complete guide to hunting butchering and cooking wild game volume one big game i will do that i will do that it's got all that in i it. got all yeah that's that i think i will need at the shooting at the shooting range i will not just shoot bullseyes anymore so i took a shot and it ended up being a little bit low so it was a gut shot but i didn't know that because it went down immediately and i was like oh my god I, really? I, did I did I just do it? Like I was very excited, but I did not get up, and I just lay there and waited because I know that from working on this podcast that if you approach a deer, if you approach a buck or a bull, uh, and it's not dead, you may get um, gored. Gored. You might get you might get totally gored by its antlers. So I just stayed lying down. And 30 seconds later, it stood up. And I was, it was, a, my heart sunk. I started to get very nervous. I didn't know where to take the next shot. It was nose to nose to me. There was just all the, I didn't kill it. It's suffering. What am I supposed to do? Um, and I ended up taking a not very good shot. It Like another not very good another shot. Another not very good shot. And I almost destroyed a little bit of backstrap, but didn't. It was like a couple inches to the right of its spine. Um, And then I felt like an idiot and needed to take a third shot. Or I just waited for a little bit um, and thought that I needed to take a third shot or slit its throat or something. My gun jammed. It was a whole disaster. I was freaking out for a little bit. And finally he turned to be almost broadside to me on the other side, on, on his opposite side. 
and I shot him again, and he went down, and he eventually died, but he didn't die immediately. Uh-huh. And while he was not dying immediately, I wondered if I needed to slit its throat. I've heard of people who, you know, to put the creature out of its misery sooner rather than later to do that. But I remembered, you know, because I was by myself, I didn't feel like compromising my own safety to end its life sooner. Mm. I, I knew that it was going to die, but I made the choice. I was sitting there like, buddy, I'm really sorry. And I was upset about it, but I still stayed, you know, Yeah, he's far got two away. real sharp things on yep, his head. Yeah, exactly. Um, and he died a few minutes later, and that was it. And then I gutted him and called my boyfriend, and we carried it out on our shoulders. And and then I cried at 2 a.m. in the shower after. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. yeah. There was no—I hadn't—yeah, it was really funny. Like, it kind of hit me after I called Hayden. Like, we—you know, there was a kind of, um, you know, quartering, quartering uh, party. And, uh, yeah, way later, I— you know, I think I think like when the smell of its like scent gland was washing out of my hair is when I, <laughs> it's when I was, Man. which when it kind of hit me a little bit. Um, but I think there were so many things that I did wrong that you know, good that good learning in experience. I, in the freezer, though. So. Yeah, but yeah. I'd be like, there's a lot of things you did right. Yeah, it's I hard mean, to figure. I mean, it's hard to go figure stuff yeah. out. And most people will never go do. Not most people. A lot of people won't go do something by themselves that they don't understand well because they're so paralyzed by the idea they're going to do it wrong. Yeah, I mean, I was. Um, there were certain things that I was like really proud of myself in the moment. Just how I was trying to like read where I needed to be to take a shot, or how close I needed to be, or you know, being really quiet and and trying to be patient. But it was some of the, you know, it's in the moment when your adrenaline is like coursing through your veins or stress hormones and trying to just get it done in one shot. I mean, it was close enough. I could have, I you know, I could have, um, but it didn't, it didn't happen that way. So definitely lessons for the next time that I do it. Corinne texted me yesterday because she's trying to figure out how to make a freedom mount and head cheese. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Which I told her they're not exclusive. You can head cheese yeah. it. You said low and freedom low mount. And slow. That's right. Yeah. You remember ready. how they had to rebrand French fries because they didn't they didn't mount. want us to yeah. invade Iraq? Yeah. <laughs> I rebranded uh, Euromart mounts. I like it. Yeah. Um, I don't know what the hell it has to do with Europe. That that's skull. That's totally totally doable. <laughs> that's totally doable. Make, yeah. yeah. Oh, but yeah. I, but low I feel and like slow. I feel like people. It seems like people waste so like the average. I mean, you guys have known this, but it's like the average person seems to waste so much meat. And I'm like trying to pick every little bit of flesh out, like it's going to go to my dog or it's going to go to soup. Like I don't. Well, you stare deep enough into those ear and nose canals. Oh yeah, I did. <laughs> no, I did. I cleaned out. I, like, listen. What's this large pinky sized <laughs> larva? Yeah. I actually, um, actually cleaned some of the earwax out of its ears, and there were like, even though I'm euro mounting it, I was just like so interested. So I was looking, I was looking in in it. And then um, there were still like there were a number of mites, you know, oh, yeah. crawling out. You know, and, another um, interesting place to find it. painful looking stuff on deer is in the corner of their eyes. Yeah. Oh, mm. yeah, like little, get, like little, a, like eye a, poo. Yeah, no, they get like a pocket of like weird 
material in there. It looks like hmm. sawdust. I don't really understand what the hell hmm. you get. Episode hmm. six of One Week in November, Tony Peterson kills a whitetail whose eyes are all messed up. Like oh. The, is he packed full of stuff from rubbing his antlers or something? I don't know. I've only seen pictures of it, but I'm sure it'll be addressed on the episode. Cool. That's a good cliffhanger right there. Um, That's good, man. I don't know. You seem like all tore up about it, but I mean, here, here, no. here's look, look at it like this. I need this. to do better on hunting storytelling. Like yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't want to do it, but I could tell that story real quick. But uh, <laughs> here's what I'll say. Can you, can you set a template for me so yeah, I be can like, learn from okay. you? Okay, you really want me to? Yeah, seriously. Because okay. um, like, I totally bored myself to death. I, hunt this, I got this little spot I hunt. It's really small. It's close to town. Um, usually you go out there and you just see deer like on other people's properties. But I went out there and like, holy shit, there's a deer like on the part I can hunt, which really surprised me. So I crept up on it and it got a couple bad hits, but it died. <laughs> that was so good. I will, I will point out that when Corinne told me the, the story, um, I think we were at the 37 minute mark. Oh, by, by the time we uh, we wrapped up that Dude, portion of the phone call, so was the hunt, would be a great was the hunt thirty-seven minutes. No, the hunt was from the time I saw it to the time I got it was a little over an hour. I used to want to start a business. So that was people, a brief version for you. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to start a business where people that are trying to rationalize something that doesn't make any sense would call you up and you'd help them rationalize it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Where they, they want to buy a certain car, but they're already in debt and everything. Yeah. <laughs> and I'd be like, hey, listen, man, let's try this one on. Um, you do best when you feel good about yourself, right? Like you'd like to feel like a winner. And that helps you perform like a winner. So maybe you need this car to become a winner. Right? I'll help you like rationalize shit. Oh, man. A better business might be people call up and they're like, dude, I got a hunting story, but I don't know how to tell it. <laughs> and then they tell it. And then you're like, okay, let's work at it here. What you do? Start like this. Good little business. Yep. I'll be like, hit one for rationalizations. Hit two for lengthy hunts. <laughs> <laughs> but I think you did great, Corinne. I think you just, you know, it's, it's uh, however you want to say it, time in the woods, time in the saddle. You know, you just need more repetition. Yeah. yeah. And uh, even with a lot of repetition, you can end up in a situation where you're like, yeah, a couple of bad hits, and but I got mm-hmm. it. I know what I was going to tell you to make you feel better. Not make you feel better, but here's the thing. Let's say you're bow hunting. Mm-hmm. And you hit a deer. It runs off. And you got, okay, now we're going to wait an hour. Okay. So later you go trail it. And as you're trailing it, you're like, oh, here's where it stopped for a while. And there's like a pipate sized pool of blood dried on the leaves. And you go a little bit and like, oh, it stopped here for a while. And you go a little bit. Now you're 200 yards away from where you hit it. And here it is dead. Uh, that might not have happened. Mm-hmm. That might have happened over an hour, but it's out of sight. So that person then finds the deer and they're nothing but happy. They didn't have to witness what went on during that hour. Right. The, re- the reason they're waiting an hour, they're waiting an hour because it might not be dead. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If it was a foregone conclusion that it was laying there dead, you wouldn't need to wait an hour. Right. You're like letting it die. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. So you were witness to something. That is, it is like, if you're not comfortable with that, then don't shoot at things. Yeah. No, you're, I mean, you're I witnessing, was, yeah. you're witnessing something that is, is like people just assume it's happening right. out right. of their view in thick country. 
Well, here's a question. After you maybe take a bad shot and it goes down and it comes up slowly and you think like it's just trying to gather itself, it might die if you just still watch no, it. No, once it, it might comes not... up, that ain't going to happen. Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. If so it's you, down, you at it least comes take back another, up. Yeah, it's you the, take another yeah. shot. Okay. Spring is a great time to do something with your family. Do some spring cleaning, which I kind of started today outside. Planning outdoor activities, which I'm always doing. Taking a little trip to Hawaii with your kids for spring break, which I just did, which was great. You know what else you can do for your family this spring? You can shop for life insurance with Policy Genius. Make that part of your financial planning for the year. I've said it before a thousand times. I'll say it again. When my wife and I, when we started having kids, We got serious about life insurance, and man, I felt so much better after we did. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Even if you already have a life insurance policy through work, it may not offer enough protection for your family's needs, and it may not follow you if you leave your job. So save time and money. And provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. I want to tell you about an American made success story and Black Buffalo's award winning nicotine pouches. Black Buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use. Black Buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip but they understand the convenience and discretion modern-day consumers are looking for. Black Buffalo's nicotine pouches give you the versatility to consume discreetly, but keep the ritual with flavors dippers love. Mint, straight, and wintergreen, all proudly made right here in the USA. Tell them, Chili. The reason I like Black Buffalo pouches is, one, they're very discreet. And what I mean by that is I can throw one in and almost forget it's there. And I prefer the mint pouches. So if you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the Black Buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. Hey everybody, I'm talking here about Montana Knife Company from our very own state of Montana. This company was founded by one of the most experienced master bladesmiths in the world, Josh Smith, who, over recent months, I've become friends with. And my God, have I learned a lot about knives from this guy. Just a phenomenal hometown company that makes world-renowned knives. Josh has been making knives for 30 years. You get one of these knives up and open it, it is sharp like something that came from outer space. And here's the deal. They make knives that can be sharpened. You can work on these knives. If you don't want to work on them, you send it to them and they'll work on it. They'll get it sharp. Phenomenal hunting knives. If you want to see them in action, we just did, uh, me and uh, John Hayes, the taxidermist, just did a video about how to properly skin a black bear. Um, Watch that video. And in that video, you'll see Montana Knife Company knives in action. 
MKC products usually sell out in minutes of being released, which is true. But now for the first time, they're dabbling with having knives in stock on their site. So right now you can grab yourself a Blackfoot 2.0 or the Ultralight Speed Goat. Use code MEATEATER and you get 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company, working knives for working people, 10% off with the code MEATEATER. That's a good deal. So a guy was listening to the podcast at his campfire and he got, and he was listening to Chester singing his who yippa, who yippa song. <laughs> and it called in a black bear and two cubs. <laughs> that song. Should uh, put that on a Fox pro or something. I know. <laughs> put it on a predator caller. Chester going, who yip, <laughs> called one in. Um, oh, dirt miss buddy. Shot a bear, took it to get checked, and they just had tranquilized and relocated the bear. Which, when someone gets a bear in the back of your mind, you're thinking, like, hey, it must be a good hunter. But then when he gets a bear that's been recently relocated, it paints this entirely different picture. Bears. Where it's like, what the hell is that bear doing there, right? Bear's figuring things out. So he got like a bear that had recently been, had lived where he's lived for 10 days. And, um, you know, eh, you know, kudos to him. So the, the, the fishing game says, we just tranquilized that bear, don't eat it. To which I said, that's just someone trying to cover their ass. Like, there's no way that's going to make you sick. Then we talked about people we've known that have been hit by tranquilizer darts. And they were fine. Kind of. Someone wrote in to say, uh, someone from Minnesota's DNR, who anesthetizes bears. He says, there isn't a lot of literature on the subject, but the 30-day window is usually derived from the retention time of drugs in the muscles of domestic animals or captive wildlife. The use of domestic animals is a good proxy for wild animals because getting a good replicated sample of wild critters to test on would be difficult. Minnesota DNR utilizes the 30-day guideline. As such, here's where it gets interesting. We don't drug animals within a month of the bear season opener for research. But if a bear is anesthetized in that window by USDA Wildlife Services. It is marked with ear tags that say do not eat by. Which is hilarious. Hilarious. It's like finding a bear with an expiration date on it. Yeah. Heffelfinger weighed in. They have a 30-day rule of not eating tranquilized bears in Arizona. If we do have to drug a bear within 30 days of a hunting season, we put ear tags on them that, that, that say, call AZGFD, which is the state's fish and game department, call AZGFD, do not consume. <laughs> Let's say it's harvested three years later, still wearing this ear tag. You call in, they'll say, go ahead and disregard the drug is metabolized out of their system in 10 to 14 days, but agencies like to play it safe. That, that was my, I was like, man, I'd eat that bear, but I can completely and totally understand why a state employee would tell you do not eat that bear. Oh, yeah. They're never going to be like, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for calling in. <laughs> of course, they're going to be like, uh, no, <laughs> no. Then, is my, well, can you is tell my me more official about that? answer. <laughs> no. Uh, so, Jack, you were born um, in Montana. 
According to my parents, yes. Yeah. How long did you live here? How long did you live here before you went away? Because then you came back and tried college here. No, I was I was born and raised in Shelby. Okay. Um, I graduated from high school there, and then I went to the University of Montana and Missoula, and flunked out almost immediately, and uh, and then got drafted. Flunk, can you can you uh, flunked out on what grounds? Like you know what I mean? Like what was going on? Well, unbeknownst like you were bad. To me, yeah, like like I think at the end of my first two semesters, I had a zero point zero six grade average. Like that bad, that bad. You know, I had all F's and one A in swimming. <laughs> <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah, well, I'm serious. Yes, and uh, yeah, I got drafted and and I went to Vietnam and came back and I went back to college and. Flunked out six more times. But why would they keep giving you more chances to go back? Well. You have to pay to go to school. Uh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> like, man, we're making, we're making a lot of money off this guy. Yeah. Uh, All because uh, of the science fair. They decided, yeah, they, yeah, I, when I was in high school, like, I won three of the four science fairs. And my science teacher was, you know. I couldn't understand why I was flunking science classes and winning science fairs. That is a good question. It was a good question. Yeah. It turns out I'm just severely dyslexic and reading is the hardest thing that I do still. Anyway, my father just thought I was just a dumb shit. And so. Was he mean about it? Yeah. He had been the valedictorian of his class and so. You know, he just figured I was lazy. And so when you're, okay, if, if you're dyslexic, like what, what's happening when you try to read? I, you know, it's pretty hard to explain since I don't know how, what's happening when you're reading. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just, I, I, uh, I think most of it is just a lack of, of the really short term memory. I can't memorize anything. Okay. Not even like four letters or four numbers. And so when you can't retain, you know, I can, I can sort of read along. I read letters rather than words. Okay. And so it just takes a long time, but then you can't retain it. So, you know. But if you're, if you're listening to a book on tape, is that better? It's better, but it's still, the short-term memory thing is still there. So, you know, my learning, most of the learning that I've done is just sort of on the job training, right? Experience. So walk through how you went from not being able to keep in school to being the foremost or one of the foremost dinosaur researchers on the planet. Like something had to well, happen. Well, nothing really happened. I, I was pretty lucky. Um, the professors at U of M realized that you know, that I had a real strong interest in paleontology. Finally, they just, you know, just let me take classes. And at the end of it, I had also learned how to prepare fossils, how to clean fossils out of rock. And I was pretty good at it. And I went to college for seven years. And at the end of it, I had taken all the classes that I thought were necessary to be a paleontologist. I didn't think I'd ever really be one, but I took all the classes. And then I just started applying for jobs all over the world where they spoke English. 
you know, in museums. And uh, there was a guy that had just come to the University of Montana from New Jersey, uh, Rutgers University, and he saw some of the stuff I did. And so he put a word in for me at, at Princeton University, and I got a job as a technician at Princeton University. So I went there, which was culture shock, as you can imagine, Shelby to New Jersey. Well, then I started working there in 1975, and two years later, I found one of the first dinosaur eggs in North America. And then, you know, we found baby dinosaurs the year later, and I published my first paper in Nature magazine. And they, like, Nature didn't dis, they didn't have a thing that you can't publish in here if you don't have a doctorate. Nope. You can't publish in here nope, if you they, don't have a degree. They just, you know, they're just looking for good data. But but how did you know to make your like how did you know to make your findings conform to what it takes to have like a to be in a peer reviewed journal? Well, I my boss at Princeton University, the curator there, helped me out. Helped you write it up. He he didn't help me write it. He just sort of he gave me a lot of pointers, and I had learned a lot of things when I was at the University of Montana. My professors there had taught me a lot about how to write a paper too. So. Yeah. So, so what was that paper? It was uh, the family structure of dinosaurs. And I realized early on that if I studied something that no one else had ever studied, I didn't have to read very much. <laughs> yeah. So no one had found baby dinosaurs before that. And no one had even gone looking for them because they, at that time, didn't even think they could find them. And so dinosaur behavior was sort of something that I was interested in doing. And, and then fortunately, through a whole bunch of weird circumstances, found baby dinosaurs and, and it basically launched my career. And you didn't have to go read everybody else's stuff about baby I didn't baby have to read anything. No. How did you find the, the dinosaurs? Like what, were you looking for something specific, a different, like a, a type of soil or? No, um. Like, it's sort of a history to it. Um, there were two paleontology groups. There was a, a group from the Smithsonian and a group from the American Museum in New York that back in the early 1900s had found some dinosaurs in Montana and very close to Shelby where I grew up. In fact, some of them were found where I found my first dinosaur bones as a, as a kid. And a lot of the dinosaurs that they found, they named new species, but they were little. And in 1975, the year that I got a job at Princeton, a paper came out showing that those were juvenile dinosaurs. It showed that juvenile dinosaurs looked different than adult dinosaurs, even though they looked really different, uh, even though the juveniles were pretty big. I mean, they weren't babies. They were they were pretty big. Yeah. And it's kind of, you know, it's like a deer, right? I mean, a, a young buck looks different than an older buck, right? They get up, the, their antlers continue to get bigger each yep. year. And so with dinosaurs, the same sort of thing, the juveniles look different than the adults and, you know, they can be pretty big. So they're retaining their juvenile characteristics. And this person published this paper, but then nobody paid any attention. I mean, they... They did pay attention, but every time somebody would find a new dinosaur that looked different, they'd still name it something different, not realizing it could be just a juvenile of something else. Mm, yeah. Mm -hmm. And that was where I started realizing that, you know, that's what they're probably doing. 
And so I was out looking in that same area and didn't find what I was looking for. But one day a friend of mine said, there's a lady in Bynum, Montana that has some a dinosaur. She'd found a dinosaur and she wanted it identified. And that was really close to where I'd found my first dinosaurs. And so I said, you know, I'll go identify it for her. And I did. And as I was leaving her rock shop, she said, oh, by the way, do you have any idea what these little things are? And in her hand were the first baby dinosaurs mm. from North America. Wow. In eggs or, or hatched? No, they were just tiny little fragments of skeleton. Huh. And I said, you know, I was almost fell over. And <laughs> Did she I just said, find them like on her, on her property or something? She found or? them on a ranch near Shoto. Oh, okay. And... And I said, yes, I, I know what those are. They're really important. She gave them to me. I later talked to the landowners and got permission to go back out there and excavate. My friend Bob and I, who was a high school science teacher, he and I went out, excavated this thing, and it turned out to be a nest full of baby dinosaurs. Wow. And they were the first baby dinosaurs mm. in the world. Yeah. How many were in the nest? Oh, that's cool. Fifteen. Like oh, they were hanging wow. out in the nest already hatched. And they were, yeah, they were three feet long. And as really? an adult, the adults are 35 feet long. Wow. So a little nest of 15, three Baby. foot long dinosaurs hanging out in the nest together. Yep. What happened to them? How'd they get killed? Well, they, they were probably abandoned by the parents because hmm. they, they couldn't walk on their own. So. Just huh. like baby birds. So they uh, weren't like engulfed in ash or something no, like that? No, they were, they, they probably were just abandoned. Could you tell like what the nest was made out of? Like was that was kind of stuff? Made out of sediment. Oh, really? Or they'd piled, made a pile of dirt or something and mm -hmm. then carved it out. Oh, okay. What was the circumference of the nest? About six feet. That's, That's no pretty sure. tight. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. yeah. That was really cool. And was that the uh, myosaur? Yep. Cool. Mayasaura. I got to ask you one of my hot dinosaur questions. Okay. <laughs> and this has a lot to do with your research. All right. I got a couple that have a lot to do with your research. All right. Nowadays, I'm going to, I'm going to, nowadays, anytime someone that I hang out with is looking at a chicken or looking at a turkey, they go like, I, you can't pull the wool over my eyes. I got his number. That's a dinosaur. Right. Yeah. Why don't they say that when they're looking at chickadees? Well, they should. <laughs> but why does everybody just do it for turkeys and chickens? I, at, I, I don't know. That's a, that's a good question, but it might have something to do with, you know, the fact that I keep saying chickens are dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I feel like you created the problem. I probably did, you know. Yeah. Well, I could see like a, <laughs> I could see. A, I'll, I'll I'll start talking about chickadees. As I can see a, a turkey or a chicken like with the longer neck and just the way they run around looks more like a dinosaur than a chickadee. I know, but it's just starting to get, it's starting to annoy me. I I but know what you mean because yeah. uh, I don't know why isn't uh, any bird a chickadee a eagle? Yeah, yeah, well, they all are. All all birds have a common ancestor. Yeah, this is what and I want so, to get into. And so you know, they're all equally a dinosaur. So, so, and this know. is like, this is pretty bad. This is pretty one-on-one stuff. You can use that as a launch pad to talk about this whole thing is, uh, they did like the idea that dinosaurs went extinct is sort of like most of them 
all basically all of the dinosaurs that we think of as dinosaurs went extinct. The dinosaurs that gave rise to birds were little, they were like a little velociraptor thing. I mean, they're, and, you know, they're called celurosaurs. We don't even, you know, it's just one tiny branch of dinosauria. Is it a genus or a family or? It was a, it was a family, but it, but, but the, you know, the branch that led to birds, you know, branched off during the Jurassic period. I mean, it was, so birds and dinosaur, birds and extinct, the ones that would go extinct lived together. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and they were a relatively small bipedal meat eaters, um, that gave rise to birds. And so, yeah. Uh, walk through the steps in, in, fig in figuring that out. Like, what were the clues along the way that let someone be like, huh, that must, was just because there was an absence of an other explanation or were there like little concrete things that would happen? Well, you know, to determine be, you know, to determine relatedness, we look at similarities, right? You can't look. So for a long time, people, you know, looked at dinosaurs and they looked at birds and they said, you know, they. A lot of people thought they couldn't be related because there's so many differences between them, right? You know, I mean, they just don't look at all alike, right? A robin and a tyrannosaurus or a robin and a stegosaurus just have so many differences between them that nobody thought about the fact that, you know, that we determine relatedness by similarities and differences don't matter at all, right? Mm -hmm. If you're going to determine whether you're related to your brother or your sister, you can't do it by looking at the differences between you. You only do it by looking at the similarities. And so when people started actually looking for similarities, they found that, that extinct dinosaurs have more similarities with birds than they have with any other group of animals. And so... You know, Hit me with a couple of the similarities. Feathers, hollow bones, hard-shelled eggs. Um, I mean, you just, you're just lots and lots of characters. Wasn't there a big, like, aha moment with the lungs of dinosaurs and how they're similar, like, they're more similar to birds than they are to, like, crocodiles? Well, that, but that's a hypothesis. We, mm. we don't really have the lungs of dinosaurs, so, so we, we do know that that a lot of dinosaurs like long neck dinosaurs, the sauropods and the mediating dinosaurs have a lot of hollow spaces in their bones and that's similar to birds because birds, you know, birds actually breathe through their lungs into these air sacs that are in their skeleton, much more efficient than mammals. Well, they, they do that. That happens in an immediate sense. Huh? Like, I mean, when he, when a bird takes a breath, that breath isn't immediately moving into hollows in their bones. It goes right through their lungs into, into, uh, air sac, air sacs. And then the air in the air sacs comes back out. Basically the way birds breathe, they have fresh air in their lungs, whether they're breathing in or breathing out. It is really efficient. We breathe in and, you know, in our, into our lungs and we've got dead air space from our lungs to our nose, right? Yeah. And then we just breathe it back out again. But birds, like I say, whether they're breathing in or breathing out, 
there's this this sort of double passageway that that allows fresh air to always be in their lungs. Huh. Very efficient. That's right. And there's a hypothesis that the dinosaurs had that characteristic. At least at least the the Sariskian dinosaurs, which include all the meat eaters and all of the sauropods, the long neck dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The others, um, Triceratops, the horn dinosaurs and the duckbill dinosaurs, they don't have, they don't seem to have those characteristics, but had something similar. Yeah. The similarity, like thought process is, is really amazing to grasp because uh, just like one example, like sandhill cranes, right? The sandhill crane that we have flying around today that uh, we're starting to be able to hunt again in, in a lot of these states. Um, in very, 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 very similar to the degree of it is the same bird as the ones that's in the fossil record going back two and a half million years ago. Uh, and then there's this community that says, but that fossil is so similar to this fossil from 17 million years ago. Is it all just one bird? Well, it's not all just one bird. I mean, it, you know, evolution is an accumulation of, of characteristics over time. And so it depends on where you start comparing. All right. We'll take individual A, right? And and its offspring is different than it is. And and then its offspring is more different, right? And you just keep looking every generation after generation after generation, comparing back to the first one, right? The difference gets greater and greater and greater and greater. So at what point do you define a similarity, that's, right? Oh, and so that's why, you know, it's, it, it's, you can't pin down where a species, the greatest change that ever occurs in evolution is the difference between your parents and you, and you, you know, that's, Biggest change that ever happens in evolution. There's never a point when something just pops up and one day is all of a sudden I can fly. Different, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, so it is just an accumulation of characteristics over long periods of time. So, so you know, two million years. It it's possible that that the sandhill crane of today theoretically could mate with with a sandhill crane from two and a half million years ago. That, that's theoretically possible. But, but the characteristics would be very different because the ecosystem has changed so much. This is the thing that I find confuses people all the time, regardless of what they're talking about. Like I was having a conversation the other day with Clay Newcomb about uh, he's doing a series on the Folsom site. Uh-huh. Where they had where Ice Age hunters killed an animal called bison antiquus, and Clay Clay was saying it's an extinct bison species. You're like, it's not an extinct bison species. It's if you went back twelve thousand years, that's what they looked like. It's it's our it's the one we have now. It's just they look different. They were twenty five percent bigger. Their horns their horns sweeped in a different their horns sweeped in a different direction. But it wasn't like they all ceased to exist. And then all of a sudden, the kind we know today 
sprang from like Zeus's brow. Right. You know, like it's, it is just a, it's a continuum. But you how just, do you, how do you decide where to like, how do people decide where to go? Like and that ended and this began. We, we, we don't do that. You guys quit doing that. We, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Got together over coffee one morning. Well, no, a guy in 19, 1859 published a book Origins. called The Origin of Species. <laughs> That's that's pretty, when that's when they stopped doing that. Pretty good circulation on that yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. So that was when they. I mean, it basically before that, you know, before Darwin published that book. I mean, most people just you know it was sort of the Linnaean way of thinking that that fish and amphibians and reptiles and birds and mammals were completely different from each other, and you could easily identify them, and and they'd all been put on Earth on one day, right? Yeah, and so. And so what Darwin did showed that they actually were related and they're related through their, you know, going back generations and generations and, and not talking about 500 generations, but thousands of generations, right? And so you can just, you can start linking them together and we can do it, you know, now we can determine relatedness with DNA, right? Uh, from a working sense, the your example of could this uh, breed with that uh-huh. is that a pretty good like working man's definition well, of. Un- unfortunately, that is the species definition. The biologic species definition is two animals that can mate and have viable offspring. There, well, there lies the hook, right? Because right, you can't do mule it with deer and, fossils. Yeah, mule deer and whitetails can breed, but they don't have yep, a viable exactly. offspring. Right. Well, and you know the same goes for lions and tigers and 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 you know horses and donkeys. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh yeah, and, they don't have I mean, a viable. Just, yeah, they have a mule. Yeah, Clay Newcomb. Clay but Newcomb. it depends. <laughs> it depends on. They have Clay it depends Newcomb. on what the male is and what the female is because if you do it. Opposite of making a mule, you get a hiney. Oh yeah, an animal called a hiney. Oh, yeah. So, oh. so, and oh, it's like God. a liger, a liger, and a <laughs> and a ligon or whatever they call them. You know, it depends on who Buffalo the father is and who the mother. Which which species the or which organism yeah. the oh, male or female? That's is. That's the origin of the word hiney. Yep. I feel like I've heard that when I was a kid, like my grandmother or something, like, you know. They're an ass like, and a hiney. Like, cover your hiney <laughs> or something like that. Yeah, yeah, there we go. <laughs> and let me, let me hit with, let me hit with the demo, oh, population demographics question. What? Okay. Let's say you were, you were back in time. Okay. I'm always back in time. You're back in time <laughs> and you're going to go out and hunt for a Tyrannosaurus Rex. Okay. Well, I can well, I can tell you right from the get go, it's not as difficult as Corinne's story about hunting this deer. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the story was difficult. Maybe the you, hunt wasn't too difficult. You block off ten days. Uh huh. Okay. You go to I don't know. You go to the shore of the Great Inland Sea. Okay. You you block off a ten day hunt at the height of T Rexness. You find a good trail. Uh, No, you find a good good overlook. You find a good overlook (laughs) where you're commanding. You can see your 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 glass and 180 degrees. 
three miles out. Oh, okay. Okay. And you just work this glass and knob. How many do you see? And it's it's mediocre. It's a media. Turns out it's a mediocre trip. Over a ten day period. Ten days of hard glassing the edge of the great inland sea. How many T Rexes do I pick off with my binoculars? Quite a few. You think so? Yeah. Yeah. I. I'm. I would hypothesize that the number of T Rexes on the uh, coastal plain. At the height of of the Cretaceous, the late latest Cretaceous, would have been similar to hyenas on no yes on hmm. on the uh, Serengeti. Huh. Steve's like, yeah. I want to have been alive. Okay. Then. <laughs> so I mean that that like, would that would mean that the food for T Rex would have to be well. Let we're gonna we might have I might have to give you a little bit of a lesson in T-Rex that is really controversial. That's one of the reasons. Is I it who would well, win? I already, know, I already hate, know this. I already know this controversy. Hate mail from sixth graders. That <laughs> 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 it was like a, it was like a bald eagle. It, it was, no, it was like a hyena. Yeah. So they, okay. you know, hyenas hunt. I mean, they'll take down sick animal. They just take what's easy, right? I mean, they're opportunists. And that's what we think, that's what I think T-Rex was, was an opportunist because it has bone crushing teeth and it had to evolve. It had to select for having bone crushing teeth, which means that, that it's, that its ancestors had meat slicing teeth, right? And, and its ancestors could run faster than T-Rex could and it had, its ancestors had longer grasping arms. And so T-Rex selected for having bone crushing teeth, having a, a if, if you compare your femur to your tibia, you'll notice, I mean, just think about us. We are half legs, right? And, and yet we can't outrun anything <laughs> our size. We are adapted for long distance walking. We can probably outwalk a deer, but, and a T-Rex is the same thing. I mean, it's got the same proportion. It's not a runner. Uh, and a bipedal animal that is a runner has a short femur and a long tibia, hmm. like a chicken or, or any of the birds you want to pick out. I mean, they can, they run fast because of that proportion. And so T-Rex has selected for, you know, being able to walk long distances it has bone crushing teeth, it's losing its arms, and it's got this enormous olfactory lobe. And, and if you take, if you CAT scan like a, like a bloodhound, the nose of a bloodhound, it has relatively small olfactory lobes, but it has this huge bunch of olfactory septa in its big nose, and it can, you know, can come in tomorrow and, and determine whether all of us were in this room, right? I mean, yeah. that's how good the note, but it can't smell things at long distances. Whereas a, a turkey vulture, if you CAT scan it, it has huge olfactory lobes and relatively small olfactory septa. And it can smell carcass, you know, it can smell something 25 miles away. 
So does, so does that mean it's good at smelling like it's good at smelling a thing very far away right. rather than a lot of detail up close? Exactly. Yeah. And so those, that set of characters, the bone crushing teeth and the large olfactory lobes and the walking all suggest that it's, that it is an opportunistic animal. And what it smells is stank. Plus the, exactly. And plus the fact that in the fossil record, we go out to Eastern Montana and we find Tyrannosaurus rex pretty commonly. I mean, you know, the Museum of the Rockies has 12 T-Rexes. I mean, you know, we hardly have any of the little, we've got one or two of the little, little meat eaters, you know, the, the kind that, that have recurved claws and, and, and blade teeth and, and short femurs and long tibias. I mean, that could run fast and good grasping arms. They are rare, just like cheetahs are rare in mm, the ecosystem. I got you. So, so the number of specimens of, of T-Rex that we find is way above what it would be if it was an apex predator suggesting it's an opportunist. Now, you know, like I said, little kids just hate that idea. Because they want to be hunting you down yeah, exactly. and chasing you down and killing you. All right, so yeah. uh, my my little buddy Finn Harrington was going to be in here today. Oh, yeah, where's the kid you're supposed to have with you? Oh, he got sick. Oh. He's um, Fortunately, he doesn't know this is going on. Only so he doesn't know he missed out. Right. Okay. But we're going to give him a little shout out. And um, if you can hypothesize who would win in a fight <laughs> between uh t-rex and uh velociraptor one t-rex and a velociraptor yes well i have like know. six more of these so just shoot from <laughs> okay, well, first off the velociraptor probably would come as a couple of in, a few individuals and i think they scaled their prey so they just climb up and start eating so they climb, if, they would climb their prey. I think so. I think they scaled their prey. They've got recurved claws like cats, so they could climb and they're not climbing trees. I don't think. So I think they just scaled their prey. And didn't Jurassic Park like get their huh. size pretty wrong? Like weren't they really small? Well, yeah. Yeah. But you know, it was a movie. So. <laughs> <laughs> but, but like what, what was the reality of the size? And in, in the show, you see them like. You know, you know, they a could, velociraptor is about this tall. They that's, they are now like kids' favorite. Feet? They're like kids' favorite dinosaur. Mm-hmm. Used to, when I was a kid, you liked T Rex. Now kids like velociraptors. They're they're how tall? Like twenty inches? Or yeah, they're like this tall off off the oh. table. Oh, but in, they, they, oh, in the movie, they're like seven feet tall. Yeah. Oh, they. Oh, but I, it's so, it's harrowing to think they'd <laughs> climb up the animal. Oh. So when I when I was working on Jurassic Park. Steven Spielberg asked me to bring a cast of a, of a, <laughs> of, of Dinonychus, which is closely related to Velociraptor, but bigger. And so I brought, you know, our, a cast of one of our specimens down to the set and, and people, you know, if you remember the, the scene where they're sweeping sand off of a, off a skeleton, we, we had a cast of a, of a Dinonychus there. And, and, and I signed off and I said, this is, you know, this is perfect. And, and that, and it's even bigger than a Velociraptor. But 
Spielberg came along and he says, it's just not big enough. And so they just got rid of that and carved <laughs> one out of styrofoam. Throw out the side. <laughs> there you go. Thank you. That's why it's big. When, so he, but, but, but okay. So, so what is, would be is, a your, is, your, is your little buddy going to accept that he wouldn't show up alone? <laughs> I, I really, really wish he was here because he's great, great at asking questions. How many velociraptors but, but, you but, think? But, you know, if T-Rex... If T-Rex happened to just bite him, you know, he's going to bite him and he's going to just swallow him all at once. So, so What would know. be a better dino matchup? T-Rex and who? Well, you know. Clash of the Titans, obviously. Have you ever seen like pictures of, of hyenas and lions fighting? No. Yeah. That, I mean, so, you know, a lion is... A lion has some advantages over a over a, a hyena because it's just more, you know, it can just move around better, right? But a hyena has the strongest bite of almost any animal. I mean, it's got a so if it so if any piece of the lion gets into the hyena's mouth, it's gone. I mean, it just crushes it because it has bone crushing teeth. So you know, it just. If you stay out of the T-Rex's mouth, you're fine. If you don't, whatever piece is in there is gone. So how many velociraptors to take down a T-Rex? <laughs> like 10, 100, 1,000? Well, that's a good question. But, you know, I it's hard to say. But, you know, even three or four would be fine. Really? Of oh, yeah. 20-inch uh, dinosaurs could take down a T-Rex. Yeah, because, because they're the climbing neck, on right? them. That's great. I mean, how, that is great. I mean, that, you Thank know. you, Spencer. So... <laughs> it, You've seen, you know, most most uh, raptorial birds, right, come out of the sky, they hit their prey, right, on the ground, and then, then they just stand on it and they start eating it. And the animal is usually still alive. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's like the crows and the ravens. Yeah, they, I yeah. mean, they, you know, their dinosaurs' ancestors, they, they eat their prey alive. <laughs> so... Makes sense. That You're accurate. At least you didn't do that. <laughs> that poor deer. <laughs> yeah, you could have just climbed up on it and started eating. When I was a kid, uh, <laughs> Pluto was a planet, and now it's not. And similarly, I felt like you always heard that dinosaurs were cold-blooded. And then, like uh, five years ago, I felt yeah. like there were headlines like, "No, now they're warm-blooded." And then recently, it's like, "No, they're neither." So, uh, in November of 2021, <laughs> where do we stand? They're, di they're dinosaurs were they're definitely warm-blooded. Definitely warm-blooded. They're, but they're not warm-blooded like us. So, they're warm-blooded like birds. We are endothermic homeotherms. That means we generate heat internally, and we keep a constant body temperature. And we. A lot of our food goes into actually keeping our constant body temperature. And the reason that we are homeothermic that keep this is because mammals evolved as nocturnal creatures. And so they had to have a system to keep, otherwise they'd have just froze to death, right? So they had to be able to eat, generate heat internally, and then keep it at a constant body temperature. And so... Our, you know, we now could utilize the sun because we're diurnal, but we still have this leftover physiology from being, from our ancestors when we were nocturnal. Birds have always been diurnal and other reptiles. And so, so reptiles are, are cold-blooded, right? They're ectothermic heterotherms or ectothermic 
poikiotherms. In other words, they, they don't generate heat internally. They get it from the sun and they can move around to, you know, to alter that, to, to adjust it. Uh, birds are endothermic heterotherms, which means that they generate heat internally, but they can fluctuate their temperature because they can also utilize the sun, right? Mm -hmm. And so, so there are birds that can, that, you know, turkey vultures can all, can, can fluctuate their temperature by 40 degrees. You know, we, if we are four degrees, we have to go to the hospital. Hmm. And so imagine just being able to drop your temperature by 40 degrees. They do that just to sit there. They do that to save energy. Well, I mean, it, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you can go into a, a, a short-term torpor, you don't need to eat as much. And so that's why birds can sit on the wire and watch cows just eat all day long, right? And they're like, wow, what's wrong with those cows? <laughs> would, yeah. Would they drop their temperature, their internal body temperature when the sun is out in order to yeah, use exactly. the So, okay, it's just like right. – um, just turn, opportunistic. Just like yeah, turning your your, mm -hmm. your thermometer down right, when right, it's hot outside. Right, right. right. Interesting. So tra translate this for me with, because uh, you're using diurnal and nocturnal. So go back to my hypothetical hunting trip. Okay. Where I'm just like glassing good dinosaur okay. country. Okay. Am I seeing evidence at that time? Am I seeing evidence of like, oh, there's a species that's, that seems to be nocturnal. That one seems to be diurnal. There's a crepuscular one that hunts oh. in low light. Or is it like dead at night and in the daytime, everybody's out? Yeah, mo mostly like that. There there may have been some dinosaurs that could hunt, you know, near dusk or near dawn. I mean, it, there, there probably were some. But for the most part, they were diurnal. Hmm. They, they sleep were in. And the mammals at the time were nocturnal. So, the, you know, the all little fuzzy mammals that, that lived at the same time as dinosaurs, they were out at night hunting for insects or whatever. And that's how they could keep safe. Well, that, that's what I would certainly do to keep safe. Yeah. Big old dinosaurs walking around. Did you know Rocket Money can cancel a subscription for you? They'll even alert you when there's been an increase in a subscription price and negotiate rates for you. I can see my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. You wouldn't believe how many people are paying for subscriptions they don't use. This happened to me. It's annoying. This helps you find it out and get rid of it. Well, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions and monitors your spending and helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Rocketmoney.com slash meat eater.
I want to tell you about an American-made success story and Black Buffalo's award-winning nicotine pouches. Black Buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use. Black Buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip, but they understand the convenience and discretion modern-day consumers are looking for. Black Buffalo's nicotine pouches give you the versatility to consume discreetly, but keep the ritual with flavors dippers love. Mint, straight, and wintergreen, all proudly made right here in the USA. Tell them, Chili. The reason I like black buffalo pouches is, one, they're very discreet. And what I mean by that is I can throw one in and almost forget it's there. And I prefer the mint pouches. So if you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the black buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. Hey everybody, I'm talking here about Montana Knife Company from our very own state of Montana. This company was founded by one of the most experienced master bladesmiths in the world, Josh Smith, who, over recent months, I've become friends with. And my God, have I learned a lot about knives from this guy. Just a phenomenal hometown company that makes world-renowned knives. Josh has been making knives for 30 years. You get one of these knives up and open it, it is sharp like something that came from outer space. And here's the deal. They make knives that can be sharpened. You can work on these knives. If you don't want to work on them, you send it to them and they'll work on it. They'll get it sharp. Phenomenal hunting knives. If you want to see them in action, we just did, uh, me and uh, John Hayes, the taxidermist, just did a video about how to properly skin a black bear. Um, Watch that video. And in that video, you'll see Montana Knife Company knives in action. MKC products usually sell out in minutes of being released, which is true. But now for the first time, they're dabbling with having knives in stock on their site. So right now you can grab yourself a Blackfoot 2.0 or the Ultralight Speed Goat. Use code MEATEATER and you get 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company, working knives for working people, 10% off with the code MEATEATER. That's a good deal. Not too long ago, and I haven't seen your name get rolled into this a little bit. Not too long ago, a guy, maybe in the Dakotas, I can't remember his name. A guy came out, and there was a lot of hoopla, and he had said, hey, I found evidence from not only the day that all the dinosaurs died from that big asteroid collision off the Yucatan Peninsula of Mexico, I found it from the seconds that that happened. Well, that's controversial. It, can you t- explain this to people, though? Well, you know, like what a, he found. According and, and, so, according to the to that hypothesis, which is pretty cool, and I I have to say, for many years, I I didn't think they had enough evidence for it, but I I think they do now for the great die for the for the impact of a meteor or whatever it was. Huh? That hit the Yucatan Peninsula, and I think they have very good evidence for it now, and I would agree with it. But if you can imagine, I mean, a, a 
this gigantic thing hits the Yucatan and and you know the devastation first off the the think of the t the tidal wave right i mean it hits it's water basically and what was its circumference uh, well, or sorry it's, it's diameter whatever i think they're you know it varies anywhere from 2 miles to you know, 10 miles. Okay. Cause I, yeah, I'd heard eight miles, which is hard yeah, to imagine an eight mile wide rock. Wow. In yeah. The earth. And, and, and so, you know, it creates, uh, nine on the Richter scale earthquakes, basically worldwide. It, 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 huh. uh, it throws, you know, s trees and dinosaurs and water and dirt and everything into literally into the stratosphere. I mean, in basically into orbit for a while. You've heard the theory about there being dinosaur bones on the moon? No, I haven't heard that one. <laughs> it's, it's about, uh, it was in a book I read about how when and the asteroid- And that's how it happened? It blasts when, them up onto the moon? When the asteroid hit, it put a vacuum in the oh, atmosphere for goodness. like seconds where it just sent shrapnel into outer space. And based on rocks that they had found on the moon, they could hypothesize that there would be dinosaur bones that also sure. made it there. I believe anything Ooh, okay. anybody tells me. All right. <laughs> I was envisioning more of a hypothesis right. based around using like a porta potty. No. Yeah, boy. Or a little splashback, put it on the moon. <laughs> I picture yep. a T Rex just still floating around up mm -hmm. there somewhere. <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, there has been dinosaur bones in space. Myasaurus bones, baby, those baby dinosaur, some of those baby dinosaur bones that that we found in Shoto were taken up on the on one of the shuttles one time, just so we could say that baby dino that bones that dino, dinosaurs had been in space. Huh, that warranted <laughs> the expenditure of money. Well, it, somebody just took it. One of the astronauts just took it with them. Just, just it was uh, the what's his name, the astronaut that. Works at MSU. No, so I can I can he, only name I can only name a handful. Yeah. Of them. Anyway, he, he yeah, just, I'll tell you he one took thing about in a similar vein. I did a story years ago on freeze dried food, like explaining all about freeze dried food, the history, how it's made, and all that. And I learned unsettling truth: uh. no astronaut has ever eaten space ice cream in space. Okay, it went up. They didn't touch it. Space uh -huh. ice cream is so good. Why they don't they? eat it in space? Why? I don't know why. It just wasn't appealing to them. They think it. They they think that they brought some up. It was never consumed. And space ice cream has yet to be eaten in space. Uh -huh. A shrimp cocktail has. Uh -huh. huh. So what's the new evidence that supports? Yeah, we should get back to the the, the asteroid <laughs> making everything die. Well, I want to hear more about how bad it was that day. It was it was a bad day. I, I can tell you it was a bad Did day. Did it whop the Earth off its uh, uh, axis? Uh, no, I don't think so. No, no. But it, but the tidal wave would have would have washed over most of the United States, all the way up into Illinois. And, really? And at the time, there was a you know part of a seaway that kind of went up almost to Montana. And that's my hunting spot. And that, that, <laughs> that tidal wave is what this guy is saying is, has, has washed a bunch of stuff into this area in mm. North Dakota or South Dakota, wherever it is. And, and that it is a result of the tidal wave. Like it was the, 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 the 
the like depository end of the tidal right, wave right. created this great collection of junk. Right, exactly. Don't they also think volcanoes yeah. were setting off like crazy and, that day? And that was on the opposite side of the world. So India, there was a, there were, there's a vulc, a big volcanism event that seems to coincide with, with, you know, at about the same time. So, like that thing cold cocked the earth so hard that it caused volcanoes on the other <laughs> exactly. side of the earth. Yes. Yep. yep. Damn, that's a hit. Yeah. So there was, you know, there was, there would have been. It's like me hitting fires. Seth and John and pooping his pants. <laughs> <laughs> there would have been wildfires all over. I mean, it just, it would have. It would have been pretty devastating. And then blocked out the sun, all the, all and the debris, blocked right? blocked out the sun, created like a nuclear winter, killed off the plants, killed off the plant eaters, and apparently the meat eaters as well. And, and what we don't understand is why the birds survived. Did you not buy it because it was too tidy? It was too convenient? Well, it's the birds. I'm still a little concerned about how, how you know, birds are are pretty fragile in the ecosystem. And I just. Like why them? Why, how did they manage to survive? I don't, I don't quite figure out where they could be to survive. Because, you know, they have to eat the same old things that everyone else is eating. The the little mammals, maybe they had seed stashes and. But, you know, they're, they're nocturnal. They can, they probably hibernating anyway. So I don't know. It's just, you know, it's an interesting story. Um, I actually really don't care what killed the dinosaurs. But, but let me let me invite you to care for a minute. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> give me another plausible. Give me another plausible. Well, you know, theory B. There, the only theory B is that I mean, it's not very good. It's environmental. You know, it's basically um, an environmental change where where um, where the seaways retract off of the continents that had been there most of the time, which changes the, the, uh, the climates and changes, you know, air passages and all sorts. I mean, it just basically a, a pretty rapid change in the climate, mm-hmm. which in many cases could do sort of a similar thing, but you would still expect some of the dinosaurs to be, to have made it through that. And they didn't. So, but the, when the, you say that you don't, but I'm meteor, just curious. The like, meteor theory makes more sense. But I when mean, you it, say you don't care what happened to him, how can you afford not to care what happened to him? That's uh, like the burning deal, right? Not, well, not for me, it isn't. What is the burning deal for you? Well, I'm just I'm curious to know how they were so successful for 155 million years. Oh, people are focusing on the wrong thing. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> yeah, and I think with like the asteroid thing, people lose sight of that. We're closer in time to T-Rex than T-Rex exactly. was to like Stegosaurus. Right. And so what people are missing with the asteroid thing is it's not like every dinosaur died that day or that week or that month. By the time right. T-Rex came around, Stegosaurus fossils had been in the ground for 80 million years. Yep. So that's dinosaurs, a, that's a good, that's a good, I like that one. They had like an insane run. Humans will never approach what they accomplished. Yeah, yeah. No, and, 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 and we'll never approach what Neanderthal accomplished. No, that's and, right. and people think about the asteroid, like it doesn't give them credit. Like they just died in one day and they just like blinked out, but they had been around forever. That's interesting that we're as, sep- we're as separated from. We're closer. T- we're closer to T-Rex as T-Rex was to the Stegosaurus. Yep. 
I got those two lumped together like they had lunch together. Yeah. 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 And that's, I, I think, like, people would really appreciate, they would have, like, a sixth grade level of appreciation if they realized that. That they had quite a run. Yeah. So, you know, their success is pretty interesting. You had said how you, you don't particularly care about how they died off. Um, and I imagine that there's some differences in paleontology when it comes to, like, different cultures or different countries. And I remember recently that like it was a big deal when canada and i think china agreed to let each other look at what fossils they had right. or something like that so how how is that like different between like i assume what japan cares about and canada cares about or what australia cares about and france cares about you mean paleontologically yeah with dinosaurs yes well it, it you know it's it really it, it's not by country really it's by researcher mm. i mean you know i i study dinosaur behavior and dinosaur growth and my colleague in, in Canada studies, you know, he likes to find new species and, you know, other people like other things. So, you know, we, I, there's not, not really any competition between us because there's lots of stuff. I can't Anth imagine Anthropologists, that. on the other hand, you know, <laughs> where there's just a few human fossils. Oh, they, are, tend to are, du they tend to duke it out they more? Are, they really duke it out because there's more researchers than there are fossils. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's good career you, advice. I imagine, though, you had to uh, really burn some, some folks' conclusions when you determined that a new species is, in fact, not a new species, but a juvenile of a known species. Yeah, there's a few people that were irritated by that. You know? I imagine. Especially like the ones that, that named Yeah, talk through that story a little bit. Well, just, you know, it, it goes back to the paper that was published in 1975, you know. This this guy named Peter Dotson had, had published this and then people after that sort of forgot about it and forgot that, you know, sort of put that in the back of their mind that that dinosaurs change the way they look through through their growth, just like mammals do. I mean, you know, baby dinosaurs were probably really cute, you know, and and it's kind of that, you know, it's a releasing mechanism. Uh, just like with us, we we will care for our kids as long as they're, you know, adorable looking, right? As soon as they reach 18, out the door they go, right? They have to go get a job. But Dinosaurs sort of do the same thing. So they, they retain their juvenile characteristics and then, and then go through this pretty rapid change and take on their adult characteristics. And so, again, hardly anyone wrote about that. And so it was, it was fodder for the dyslexic guy to, uh, you know, bring that up again and start sinking all these species that, you know, people had named without thinking about whether they were juveniles or not. Yeah, it'd be like analogous to if you, in some future where there's no humans, and someone went and excavated a household, and they're like, there's three kinds of people. Yep. There's three species. You had these little teensy ones. Yep. And yep. a medium one and a big one. Yeah, because their <laughs> face looks different, right? Yeah. Very different. Those yep. those people that named those dinosaurs, yep. are they do they look at what you found and they're like bullshit, or are they like, yeah, he's right? Uh, they're, they're a little of both. Hmm. Hmm. You so know, they, there's, there's some some buy into it, some don't. Right. Gotcha. Yeah. 
how we, how many dinosaurs uh, or at a certain time, how many dinosaurs were there as kind of the main groups? And then after more of your work and publishing, how many went away? Um, well, that's, yeah, it's, it's hard to say. Mm. The, the Hell Creek Formation, which is the basically where T-Rex comes from and Triceratops in eastern Montana, there were 12 major dinosaurs. I mean, there were more than that, but mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 12 that we've find quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think I, I took away four of them okay. or five mm -hmm, of them. Mm -hmm, I mean, you know. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know. But, you know, we're still arguing about some of those. Jack the Ripper. would be a good, good nickname for you. <laughs> uh -huh. You know, a, a college class I took, it was an anthropology class, the first day the professor was like, now I'm going to tell you all the things that uh, you think you know about what we do but aren't true. Like, we're not all Indiana Jones, and uh, right. we're not all looking at dinosaur stuff. And, and he had said something that stuck with me. He was like, uh, you don't go out looking for Noah's Ark and then find Noah's Ark. You go out looking for Noah's Ark and then you find the Holy Grail. Or like uh, yeah. whoever discovers Bigfoot someday, if, he, if he's real, it's not going to be a guy on Animal Planet looking for Bigfoot. It's going to be like some <laughs> rancher in Texas that found yeah, one that's... stuck in his fence. Because he's, he's looking for a lost cow. Yeah. So, so what's, what's an example like in your field of work where people yeah. are looking for A, but they found B and B was really cool? Yeah. No, we don't, we paleontologists don't really go out looking for anything. We, we just hope that, that our mind is open enough and that we're observant enough to find anything cool, right? Anything new. I mean, you just, you can't, there's, fossils are so rare. I mean, you know, interesting fossils that are, that are going to give us information, new information are so rare that you just can't expect to go out and find whatever you want. I mean, I, 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 put together this thing called the Hell Creek Project back in 1999, I guess. And it was the largest paleontological expedition in history worldwide. I mean, it, we had a hundred people. We had, we had all these donors um, um, putting money into it. And the idea was, you know, we were, we were trying to figure out how much information we could actually get from one of these ecosystems. And the Hell Creek Formation has produced so much stuff for so long. But, you know, people had 30 Triceratops skulls and they were trying to sort out, you know, dinosaur Triceratops growth, for example. But in all of the Triceratops skulls that had been found, none of them were juveniles, right? Museums had gone out and and, and selectively collected the biggest ones because every museum wanted a big thing in their museum. And so in the end, they ended up with none, none of the little ones. And so our project really was to collect everything. And we went out and collected just enormous collections of stuff. I was hoping we would find a bunch of duckbill dinosaurs because that was what I was interested in studying. And, and we hardly found any but we found a bunch of those damn T-Rexes. And, and so now the Museum of the Rockies has the largest T-Rex collection in the world, right? So I ended up studying T-Rex, which was not my favorite, but <laughs> it's what we found, you know? And that's, that's basically how the science works. You just, you know, you, 
I went out to find duckbills and found T-Rexes uh -huh. and Triceratops. We found, you know, a hundred specimens of T-Rex, of Triceratops. So we learned an awful lot about Triceratops. Is there just parts of Triceratops that preserve well? Well, it, yeah. So, well, it looks like their skulls preserve pretty well because almost all the specimens we have are just skulls and very few skeletons. But we realized when we were actually excavating them that, you know, the skull is gigantic and, and it's easy to find and, and the leg bones could be scattered around by water, right? Mm -hmm. And so we realized late in this project that if we made our ex excavation a lot bigger, we probably would have found the skeletons of these things. But we, we pretty much, after we dug up the skull, we were like, oh, let's go find another one. <laughs> <laughs> I can understand that. Yeah. How do you find them? You just find pieces sticking out of the yep. ground? Yep. So most of eastern Montana is the right age rock. Yeah. So you just have to find a place where rivers have cut through. So wherever the Missouri River is cut through, there's breaks. Mm -hmm. And those breaks are, you know, form badlands. Yep. And so those are good places because the rock is exposed there. But if you're up on top of the hills, the, the right age rock is still there. It's just covered with soil mm -hmm. and usually somebody's wheat field and they don't like you digging in those. Is there like one thing that you can, uh, like, is there, is there like one certain thing where you're like, that is hundred percent a dinosaur bone because of this thing? Like I, I spent a lot of time out in like the breaks, Hell uh -huh. Creek formation, and I'm like looking at stuff all day long and I have no clue what it is. Like, is there one thing that's like. They, they look like bones. They do. Yeah. If you find one. Call him. <laughs> like I, well, you, I've, you, I've found I'll bet stuff. You, I'll bet you have found, I'll bet you found a lot of them. Yeah. I found but, stuff that looks like, that, I'm like, that looks like. A piece of bone. Or just a big bone. But yeah. I don't know. It looks yeah, like a rock probably, too. Like, well, they're, they're both actually. <laughs> <laughs> Can you uh, ex explain uh, brachiolites? Eastern Montana. Baculites. Baculites. Right. They're, they're full of them. They're yep. everywhere out there. Yeah. They're, they are. Uh, an animal related to squid and octopus, so it's a mollusk, and and what you're what you're finding is the shell. So, have you ever seen a nautilus? The shell, sure. the nautilus. That's that's what they're closely related to. Like uh, a cone, ice cream cone on the back, and a squid coming out the front. Right, exactly. And so you're finding the shell. Got it. And and they were prolific in the in the intercontinental seaway that, that is now black shale in Montana. Got it. And uh, my sister-in-law's father has one of those he picked up decades ago and it was sitting on a shelf. I was like, the hell is that? And he's like, you know, I've never been able to find out. Yeah. <laughs> I took a, a photo of, of it, put it on Instagram. Uh, he like works horses and stuff. He doesn't pay much attention to, uh, a lot of phones and whatnot, but I put it on Instagram and like 30 seconds later, I was like, that's a, what's the word? Baculite? Baculite. Then I went to, I typed into Google Baculite and hit like images and there's like shitloads of these things he has. The yeah. next day he calls me. He's like, what was that? Uh, was that uh, Google? 
Because <laughs> <laughs> he was with a buddy and wanted to show him. <laughs> well, a lot of people call me and when I was working at the museum and say, I found a rattlesnake, a fossil rattlesnake. And that's usually what they were. Sure. Or baculites. Yeah. Uh, my kids recently found, it was kind of staggering, actually. They recently found a giant fossilized clam bed. Okay. Where? I could show you. Well, I mean, in the, in the, in this state, era? in this state, oh, in the state. Yeah. Well, there are probably a lot of those. Yeah. yeah. When were the, like, I found those before. Yeah. I mean, full, yeah. Like, like, a, like a, a layers thick, broad clam bed. All right. Well, if you tell me the area, I can tell you what formation they're in and, and how old they are. I'll show you exactly later. <laughs> But we were up to something. We were up to something when we ran into it. Just give me a general (laughs) idea. I found them. Give me the county. I found them along the Missouri River. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in the breaks. Right. So that's that. That is uh, most likely that same same shell shale that the that the baculites come out of. And were those clams walking around or like doing whatever they do? Were they like uh, siphoning at the time of dinosaurs? Oh yeah. Really? Yeah. And some of them are big. I mean, there are, there are, it's, there's a clam called Inoceramus that, you know, is like the size of that wall, a clam. Really? I, uh, way back when Steve and I were taking uh, a couple of LA comedians out on a mule deer hunt in the Missouri breaks and I'd stopped and uh, bent over and picked up a fossilized clam and uh-huh. showed it to Brian well, Callen. I said, hey, check that out. And he said, yeah, so? I said, well, it's a fossilized clam. It's a fossil. <laughs> and he said, yeah, so? <laughs> and I put it back down and kept walking. <laughs> <laughs> How, uh, if you look at kids' books, kids' books about dinosaurs, of which we have more than a few, um, the dinosaur, the more recent the book is, the more colorful the dinosaurs are. In the old books, when I was a boy, they were all green, army yeah. green. All <laughs> your dinosaurs were army green. Now they're like, holy shit, they look like parrots. Wow. Where's that coming from? Well, I hope a lot of it's coming from me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but like what? Because the fossils aren't red. No. So, so like I'm saying how, like... Well, how, well, do, how, how do, do we deter? Yeah, like yeah. walk me through First, the idea that they were brilliantly colored. All right. And not army green. Okay, well. Or battleship gray. Right. <laughs> Which so, is what you have to admit, they used to be yes. when we were kids. And they are in Jurassic Park. Oh, they're battleship gray and army well, green? Well, you know, they're not very colorful in Jurassic Park. Okay. And I pointed that out to Stephen and he says, well, he said, technicolor dinosaurs aren't scary enough. He thought they'd be more scary in battleship gray? Yeah. Dude, if uh, if something to me, if a if a something the color of a yeah. parrot, yep. Yep. thirty feet long or whatever, ran out to me. I don't. That that's plenty Agreed. scary. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so the idea is that we know now that dinosaurs were feathered. At least the meat-eating dinosaurs were feathered. We we actually have the impression of the feathers. We find the impression of feathers on dinosaurs. Meat-eating dinosaurs, we don't know about T-Rex yet, but but some of the 
bigger dinosaurs, some of the bigger meat-eating dinosaurs were completely feathered. Oh, wow. Huh. And like, so, ch like chickens. No. <laughs> no. I wow. thought of and and you know, they gave rise to birds, and birds got their vivid coloration from their ancestors, and dinosaurs are their ancestors. So that's the that's the sort of the logic there. That birds are bright. Birds have iridescence. Well, I I'll have to show you my NFTs. Did you look up my NFTs? No, I didn't. Did. I thought there was, I want to say France, which uh, shouldn't be a catch-all, but maybe it is for fossils. But I want to say that they they were able to, like, isolate a pigment in fossil. Yeah. And they determined it to be oh. blue or purple. We're, we're starting to get the, the melanosomes out of dinosaur feathers, and we are determining some of the colors, and they are vivid. Because there are feathers. Like they had iridescence. Yeah. Yeah. Just huh. like birds. There are feather fossils, correct? But it's an imprint or... Yeah, it's a, they're imprints of the feathers, right? Yeah. But you can, I mean, it's just like, just like your image. I mean, they're, you know, the feathers are feathers. I mean, they're, you can tell, you can look at the veins, you can look at all sorts of things, and you can find the melanosomes in them. Hold off. I, I want to look at the NFT, but I got. I got. Then we'll, we'll get into that NFT situation. And I want to see well, what, they, what you think they look like. But first, I got. A, I got a time machine question. For okay. You. I bet time. you no one's ever hit you with a time machine question. <laughs> you get one time machine token. Okay. Okay. All right. And it's like for an hour long. You get to an hour long, day long visit. Where are you setting yours for? You get to spend one day. Like, give me location and like time, and and why that. Hmm. Well, 1982. <laughs> <laughs> you wanted to see me being born? <laughs> That's it. Nah, it was a, it was a, it was a, I had a girlfriend then. <laughs> okay. In, uh, in your professional, oh, it had to be a okay. professional oh, decision. Oh, okay. Oh, professional. It's <laughs> a great answer though. In a professional capacity. You know, I, I've, I've thought about this a lot. First off, you know, there's a huge problem with time machines. I won't go into that. You know, it's, it's a terrible thing. You, you know, time machines pretty much have to orbit the earth. Otherwise you're in trouble when you go okay. back in time. But that aside, with you. <laughs> that aside, um, you know, I just have this terrible feeling that, you know, at basically any time you pick to go back, you know, something's going to eat you just as soon as you open the door, right? <laughs> I mean, so, so, you know, of, of all the things I'd like to see, I, I, I guess my Asora, I would like to see, you know, the first dinosaur I named. And, and I, I, don't, I don't know what that one's, what's his my group? My It's a duck-billed dinosaur. You don't want to go back but, in time and see a duck-billed dinosaur? Yep. That's because, <laughs> because then, you know, it. First off, it's a friendly dinosaur, right? I mean, it's not going to eat me. Okay. And so, you know, I might be able to do some some pretty cool research with it and actually determine what its blood temperature is and 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 look at its behavior and get something about its growth. Okay. You know, you go back with the little meat eaters and they're just going to eat you. And, yeah. You know, they're... Not going to be able to tell your story. So that uh, would you go back to that Shoto area? Yep. 
Uh, would you bring knee-high boots or not necessary? Nope. Think it's going to be high and dry? Yep. What would the temperature be? Well, it was probably, you know, depends on whether it's winter or summer, right? Oh, okay. So there was like defined seasons back then? Oh, yeah. Especially at that latitude, at that, you know, that, that latitude. I mean, it's a relatively high latitude even then. Mm -hmm. Give me the hottest day of the year. Probably not as hot as it is now. Really? It would have, the temperatures would have been, you know, the lower temperatures would have been higher and the higher temperatures would have been lower. So it had been, but probably, you know, still in the seventies, eighties. Oh, really? But okay. not in the hundreds. I just know? envision everything being hot and sticky. No, no. Well, it, it, it would be sticky for sure. Okay. Because of the inland seaway. Mm-hmm. So all of that, you know, all the moisture that builds up in the Gulf of Mexico, it was pumped really north all the way into the Arctic. So we get alligators and crocodiles living in Alberta. Hmm. Were dinosaurs having offspring in, in the spring of the year? We don't know. You don't know? You know. But that's like a correlate. Most likely. I mean, that's what most animals do. Yeah. So they would have, there would have been like a hatching season or a breeding yep. season. Yep. yep. You know how, you might know the term for this. This is my last question before we talk about the NF, your, uh, your NFTs. Uh, my last question for the NFTs. What is the term for when we have the two different, there's two different strategies, parenting strategies for animals. One, they're letters and I can't remember the letters. But one would be like exempt, best exemplified by an elephant mm-hmm. who uh, has their offspring are greatly spaced apart. They put enormous resources into their offspring. Um, is it P and Y or something like that? At N and K. N and K. And then the other extreme would be might be uh, exemplified by, uh, let's, let's say, a cottontail rabbit right. where high fecundity big litters, often very little investment into the young. Um, and these are like two strategies. Do you, do you feel that with, with dinosaurs, like, is it likely that there were dinosaurs that would spend years with their mother? And there was a, like a, like a family group that yeah, hung out. Probably. Yeah. They probably did. Um, we, we find them preserved in groups and they probably are family groups. So uh, they, you know, they raise their babies in nests, right? So they're, they're putting a lot of effort into that. And when we find a, like a herd that has died catastrophically, we find, you know, young ones, not, not babies, but, you know, younger, young, like yearlings together with, um, older adults. Mm Mm-hmm. Which so, suggests like family groups. Where they're staying pretty much together, yeah. Take a wild ass guess at what like the biggest herd of dinosaurs might have been. Well, here in Montana, we have we have the largest that's been recorded so far. It is it is a catastrophic event that is related to a volcano. Um, and and we have at least 125,000 carcasses. No. Yeah. 
That is wild. I wouldn't think yeah. there's that many carcasses in the whole world ever have been found to dinosaurs. We haven't we haven't found them all. We've 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 sampled over this huge area, and we get thirty bones per square meter. And that's from one volcanic from event. one event. Wow. Yeah. Really? So it, it could have been like you were like looking at a herd of caribou. You could have seen like dinosaurs and numbers like that. Yep. Yep. Man, blows the mind, man. How uh, how have things changed for paleontologists when, wasn't it within like the last decade where Montana declared that dinosaur fossils are minerals, which changed no, some things? With, no, they, they, that, they didn't do that. They didn't do that? No. So how, how like They were the, talking about doing that. But and they, how would have that changed things if that happened? Uh, well, that's hard to say. <laughs> it would have had implications for picking them up, right? Yeah. Right. And then who uh, owns the rights to them? Yeah. yeah. That, that was what the argument was. Uh-huh. Does, some, does the person with mineral rights own them or does the person with surface rights own them? And, and it, they maintained it with surface rights. Mm. Yeah. I, I don't, it's hard to imagine what it would have been like if they changed that rule. I guess all the oil companies would all own all the dinosaurs. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> oh, was that kind of like a financial play when people yes. wanted to do that? Yeah, it I was. We had there. It was a dinosaur specimen that was found in eastern Montana on a ranch, and one of the relatives owned the land, the surface rights, and another relative owned the mineral rights and the dinosaur was up for sale and they knew they were going to get somewhere around $10 million for it. So was that the dueling dinosaurs? Yes. Okay. And so so what's the status of the dueling dinosaurs? It was, it was bought by North Carolina state university's museum or some, a donor for that museum. So it is now in North Carolina. Have you seen them? I haven't. No. Mm. Um, I, Commercially collected dinosaur remains are, are, well, I don't really want to go into all this, but. Well, you could tick off Leonardo DiCaprio and we know, we know he listens, so. But, you know, the thing is, is that when, when we go to get a fossil, we don't go to get just a fossil, we go to get data. We, you know, we're trying to learn something. And so, so a specimen is, for us is we learn a lot while it's still in the ground. And so we, we don't dig them up very fast. We dig them up relatively slow, trying to get all this information. And people that are actually buying, you know, that are selling fossils are trying to get them, you know, out of the ground as quick as they can with the least amount of overhead, right? So, so the, so that data that we're interested in is basically overhead for them. And so, and so they don't always keep all that information or even take all that information that we need. And so and so a lot of those specimens just end up as pretty things in some museums that just show pretty things that don't that aren't into research. And it's not always clear. I mean that you know there's varying degrees of 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 commercial collectors, right? Some some may be you know, more apt to collect data and some may be, you know, wandering on to BLM. <laughs> I mean, you just never know. You never know where they're getting their stuff. And they don't like to share that information with others because they don't want their competition in some of those areas. So, 
we never know whether whether the information they are sharing is actually accurate. Mm-hmm. And so, so it it it's controversial. So when the dueling dinosaurs were first found, nobody was saying where it was from, and so people were asking me, well. They show me a picture and they say, you know, how important is this? And I would say it's not important to science at all yeah. because we don't know anything about where it came from. And, and the, of course, the landowners were really mad at me for saying things like that because they were trying to sell it and, you know, it caused a big ruckus. But, you know, it's, it just, until they actually released the information and let scientists into the site to to get the data, it was useless. I yeah, mean, that was that was kind of when I became aware of like the politics of gathering stuff like that. Yeah. Like I know what happened with Sue in South Dakota, but then right. when the dueling dinosaurs happened, and, and uh, you were quoted saying like they're they're meaningless, like they're not special unless yep. we can look at them. Yep. Uh, that was when I uh, became more aware of that and the mineral rights thing. Why why did Mongolia? Why has Mongolia emerged as as sort of like the hot spot for the trade in dinosaur skeletons. Is it just because, is it because of a lack of oversight or is there like a shitload of dinosaur bones there? Both. Okay. Uh, you know, I, I do a lot of work there and, and, and I have actually Mongolian students that have come and been trained at MSU and then gone back to work in the museums there. Um, they, you know, Mongolia has, is one of the poorest countries in the world and they, they have nothing. I mean, they don't, they hardly have any exports. They export cashmere and, and charcoal briquettes. I mean, you know, they hardly have anything. And, and, and so their treasures are their fossils and, and their historical, um, stuff. And so, but they don't have enough people. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a country with 3 million people that's a third the size of the United States. I mean, it's a huge area and hardly anybody lives there. And, the, and, and so poachers go into Mongolia and steal those fossils, take them into China and then ship them to the United States and sell them. And then we, you know, we started realizing, and, and like I said, their national treasure is against the law to do that. Mm-hmm. And so we started reporting, you know, the fact that, we were seeing some of these Mongolian treasures in the United States. And so, so Homeland Security actually stepped in and helped go out and retrieve these things from people like Leonardo. Mm-hmm. Oh, and he had a dinosaur get taken away from him? Oh, I don't know. I, the, I don't, I don't I think it was a major Leonardo, collector. but. I was thinking but, Nick Cage. Nick Cage was. Yeah. Yeah, he it's was just shocking. Up. I mean, you can't imagine a guy like that doing. <laughs> you know, I mean, what is the world coming to? That would make for a good heist movie. Instead of gems or money, they were stealing like dinosaur yeah. heads. I'm sure there yeah. is one, man. Yeah. So you know, so they, so they, I think they've pretty much shut that, that down now. But you know, there's still there's a market, and people like to have dinosaurs on their, you know, living room. I sure table would. or whatever. Yeah. You wouldn't, or you don't? I, I, <laughs> you know, a museum. I, I put them all in the museum. My, when I was young, my mother was always irritated that I was filling up the basement with, you know, dinosaur bones. Did you have some good stuff down there? I had some pretty darn good stuff. <laughs> you said you she found. She told your... me I had to get rid of them, and 
You said you found your first at age five. I found my first fossil at age five, and I found my first dinosaur bone at age eight, and my first dinosaur skeleton when I was 13. Huh. What was the first fossil? It was, uh, it was a baculite. Oh. And then what was the first dinosaur? It's a piece of a duckbill dinosaur. Oh, oh man. Cool. There you go. Oh, nice. Mm. I mean, with all due respect, it's hard to get out of just sitting where I'm at. It's hard to get excited about duckbill dinosaurs. I know. A lot, a lot <laughs> no, of people. That, a lot that's of people such BS. <laughs> Tell them how big they were. Yeah, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're pretty cool. And they've got big crests on their heads and, you know, 30, 40, 40, 40 feet long, you know. 40 some feet of them, long. You know that, some of them geez. 50 feet long. You know that, you know, are you familiar with that cartoon, uh, was it Dino Train? Or what the hell is that cartoon? Uh, dinosaur, uh, train, yeah. dinosaur Train. Dinosaur Train. Dinosaur Train. Uh, they did had, you, did was, you watch that? My kids, yeah, I watched yeah, my did kids. Did you see Dr. Scott? They, uh, yeah. Yeah, he was one of my students. Oh, he'd come on in the end, yeah. kind of shuck the corn <laughs> on whatever they were talking about. Yeah. Well, <laughs> on the Duckbill episode, maybe you found this out. On the Duckbill episode, they got those things doing like a, a hoot. Yes. Hooting, yeah. Like they could hoot and call to one another. Yeah. You buying that? Well, I, if, you know. That was your idea? I, well, no. It, I think it's a general consensus. That they, that they had a large hooting noise yeah. they could make. Yeah, it's yeah. the dusky grouse of the dinosaur mm. world. Yeah. <laughs> you like it now, Steve? Huh? No, I'm in the dog. If I could. <laughs> get Phelps on what one for? of those calls. Yeah, what, what would make you appreciate them, Steve, if you looked at the NFTs? I'm looking things. at the damn NFTs. <laughs> well, some of them make noise. The NFTs are on OpenSea. OpenSea. Explain what... It, Bust, it, bust I, I, it, break it down. I, I actually, uh, well, I can break down dinosaur. I can't break down blockchain. Okay. I, I don't understand it. But NFTs. you are selling a non-fungible token, token of what you feel like dinosaurs should look like. What yeah. they, what you feel they look like. All right. Yep. And the audience can, one of the ways to see some of the images of the NFTs uh, is on Instagram at Jack Horner's with an S dinosaurs. And there people can look at what you think dinosaurs look like. Right. Far scarier than what Spielberg did. <laughs> well, they're prettier anyway. Oh, I just went to Jack Horner's Dino Vision and it popped up that Spencer Newhart follows it. <laughs> I do. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> Okay, so hold on. I want to see. So where, where do I want to go? So, so Jack Horner's Dinosaurs. I go to Instagram. Jack Horner's Dinosaurs. The real-life inspiration for Jurassic Park's... There it is again. The real-life inspiration for Jurassic Park's lead character, Dr. Alan Grant. Jack Horner is a world-renowned vertebra paleontologist and researcher. And in here are videos and images of what you think these buggers look like. Yep. Huh. Are what they different? It's different than what I thought they looked like. Who's this guy? That's a T-Rex. Oh, he looked like a big old turkey. Yes, he does. Big old gobbler. Oh, and then you also have with a, on with Instagram. A feathery, with a feathery base of his neck. Oh, you can see some of this at, at Jack Horner's, yeah, Dino Vision. At Jack Horner's Dino Vision. That one's cute. Huh. Man, the Triceratops, your take on it is a crazy-ass-looking dinosaur. Yeah. Huh. 
What are you going to do with the money from the NFTs? You going to like donate it to museums and stuff like that? Or you... I have a, yeah, I have a 501c3 uh, educational foundation that it goes into and then we distribute it, the money to paleontologists in the field and gotcha. or, or science education. And talk about how it's a little bit controversial that you're doing this. We've covered this controversy <laughs> heavy duty. Have you? The NFTs? Not your particular. The NFTs? Not, yeah, just like cryptocurrencies and NFTs. Yeah, I something I, I I don't really totally understand it, but I understand that you know it that that the so-called mining of Corinne. Why don't you? Why don't you talk about? Yeah, we we've covered it. It's, it's, I, I don't, it's I don't a, really. You're, get, you're but it takes enormous, a lot of. You're running enormous amounts of calculations, and it sucks a lot of energy. And I'm and I'm sure it does. For a lot of NFTs are released like. By the thousands. They're talking about crypto. It's 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 doing the computations necessary for cryptocurrencies. It's taking up a lot of energy. Yeah, yeah, I I know, and I people have been you know not very friendly about it. Yeah, <laughs> your, right. your students said you were anti-environment. Yes, and all this. yeah, because oh, of getting yeah. into NFTs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. What'd you say to them? Well, I you know I I told them to explained to me what it was that, you know, was so bad about them. And they, and they did. And, and I said, well, it's done. What can I do about it? And they said, don't do it again. And so, you know, huh. but it's how I'm generating money for research. So I don't, you know, I'm, I'm, and I, and I understand that there's, you know, there's some concern, but I know also that there's a lot of, you know, people working on reducing the the environmental impact as well. So, yeah. Can I tell you a little something you might not have turned up in all your research? Okay. <laughs> no one is pure enough. <laughs> no one's pure enough, buddy. Yeah. Well, boy, I'll tell you, not, not on Twitter. That's for sure. <laughs> I, I got one last question. How does uh, like some guy in his twenties that lives in Bozeman say, and like works at a media company, like get to go on one of these oh, dinosaur is that you? digs? Maybe I'm oh. just, just like a hypothetical. Just How old keep, are you? Just, just keep, just keep in touch. Still keep, technically in his twenties. Keep in touch with you. Yeah. Oh, okay. You're yeah. going to take Spencer out digging dinosaurs? Oh, take me too. Oh, yeah. 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 All right. Field trip. Well, if you send these guys behind. home, if you send these guys home with a big triceratops skull, I'm going to be pissed. Yeah. 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 I'll be out. I'll be out in July. I'll be back up in Montana and I will have excavation up in northern Montana. And you're going to let them volunteer. Is, is this and a real you're, invite? Because don't, don't put it out there. Yeah. Listen, he's I'll, a rock, I'll take he's a rock hunt some bitch, man. <laughs> you bring him out, he'll find something <laughs> real good. You all have a standing invitation. All right. Well, all right. I, I, I got my own paintbrushes and everything. Okay, he'll find, <laughs> that, that, Spencer will find like a living dinosaur. July? July. <laughs> yeah, good. Nothing happens in July. <laughs> you're seriously going to go? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm going too. Spencer's hardcore rock hound. I didn't know this about yeah, Seth. Northern Montana. Seth's a rock hound poser because we spent a lot of time together. He hasn't brought this up to me. Uh -huh. No, listen, Spencer. <laughs> we're gonna do it. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm oftentimes sending Spencer shit. Like, what yeah. the hell is really? this? He's trying to establish his bona fides as a no I, rock hound. I, I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not Spencer for sure. But, um, mm. well, one of the areas. Yeah. Well, we if Jack go, comes to me and he says, one "Which of, the of these boys is actually serious?" Where, where we where we look, we can sit on the hill, look for dinosaurs. And then look out at at the at the modern river and see 
herds of elk. Mm. Mm. Uh, so you're that's scouting. That's fun. Nice. I like that. That's fun. You're scouting too. I'm gonna start. I'm gonna start marking spots where I find stuff and then <laughs> okay, taking good. pictures good. and sending them to good. you. Excellent. Let me ask you this real quick. This is my last question. <laughs> I don't. You know that clam, the clam bed. Yeah. Uh, it's on federal land. But let's just say a feller owned a clam bed. Is that of any significance, or are those things just everywhere? They're, yeah, they're mostly everywhere. Okay. Tried to explain that to my kids yeah. to reduce the heartbreak of them not being able to haul off all those clams. Well, you know, they could haul off quite a few of them, and it's okay. Everywhere to the oh. point where BLM <laughs> says that, like, you can take invertebrate fossils. Yeah, invertebrates are fine. They oh, they could have hauled off a clam? Yeah, you like, can, I have baculites can, that yeah, I took from take, BLM land. Clams. Oh, shit. It's vertebrate, yeah, got, vertebrate fossils. Man, they're going to kill me. Because here's but, the thing. I was just trying to be, like, instilling them, like, uh, you know, yeah. you know how you do when you have kids. And uh, well, I told I, them, can't it, take those clams. Well, you know. Shut up about kids, the clams. <laughs> kid, kids can fill up a basement pretty quick. They could have kept the clams. No, not knowing where you were, there are certain exactly places around Fort Peck where you can't be taking stuff. Nothing at all. Yeah, CMR. Yeah. Well, so. I could walk right back up. I could walk right back up to this thing and pass my kid's deer's gut pile on the way. Mm-hmm. And in order to <laughs> do that, up a bunch of clams. you'd have to drive past a lot of clams. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the spot where I found the big clam bed is right where you guys were hunting. Hmm. Nah. <laughs> Not the oh, same. I said it was my last question, but here's my last question. <laughs> this is a closer. This gives you a chance to close her out. Oh, okay. What's the next, uh, when you crystal ball, okay, in your field, what's the next big thing that, that people need to find out, right? So uh, if, if I don't we, have a clue. Really? We chunk out like this whole bird shit. That's interesting. The feathers and the colors. That's uh-huh. interesting. You don't have any like that, that, that they could blank or, you know. No, no. I just, I just <laughs> hope we don't overlook it. <laughs> so you don't have a, you don't have a hunch. Nope, not a clue. What nope. are you working on right now? I'm, I'm interested in. I don't. I'm interested in, in how, dinosaur accoutrements, you know, how they grow. It's just, it's like looking at deer antlers. It, do you know anything about deer antlers? I mean, they Not are- as much Spencer does. They are made of, I mean, the animal, just, um, you know, just imagine. I mean, the the animal puts a huge amount of energy into growing these things and mm. then drops them and then starts over the next year, right? I mean, a lot of accoutrements are kept year after year. I mean, it's, you it's know. less expensive that way. And-, and the big shield on a triceratops. I mean, it's an enormous structure. I mean, on, a, on an adult triceratops, their skull is nine feet long and six feet wide. I mean, wow. it's just huge. God, I'd have one and, of those. And, and, you know, and their parts of them are paper thin, and yet you never find them broken or, I mean, hmm. or heal, rehealed. I mean, so, so it's, it's just, it's just interesting. We just don't know very much about them. Do you think that there was a, that there was probably sexual display. Yes. And there was probably protection. No. I don't think any of those accoutrements were for protection. I think they were all for display. Just yeah. look like a bad mofo to the ladies. Because, you know, mammals are really, because mammals evolved as nocturnal creatures, most mammals display 
um, physically, right? I mean, crashing into each other, butting each other. I mean, there are a lot of physical mm-hmm. actions mm-hmm. and, 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 and the communication between them is usually olfactory, right? They're sniffing one another. Okay. Birds and other diurnal animals, reptiles and, and birds and probably dinosaurs were all visual. A lot of show. So it was all show, you know, and, and we see that in birds. I mean, yes, birds, male birds do fight sometimes, but mostly it's the males displaying to the females. And that wild think of a, of a dinosaur doing like a, like a dinosaur leck, like a leck. Yeah. And they're like yeah. displaying and strutting. Strutting and dancing and singing. And, you know, I think the whole works. I think everything 60, we see in birds. 80, 120 feet long. Yeah. Wouldn't that be cool? Yeah. Yeah. Well, next time someone asks you the old time machine question, why don't you put that one down? Breeding season. Breeding season. Yeah. There you go. Now you got a good answer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think well, no, mat- no matter where, no matter what dinosaur you went to see, I think it, one thing it would be is stinky. Mm. You think uh, so? I, yeah, I think I think those plant eating dinosaurs and the meat eating. I just think it was pretty nasty. <laughs> <laughs> it's like especially they smelled. the sauropod, the big long neck dinosaurs. I mean, they were those big giant stomachs were fermenting. Oh, oh my God! That they were gaseous. Been, yeah, that, that was. That's when there really was a lot of methane. Methane in the atmosphere. Yeah. Huh. All right, man. All right. So I'll see some of you next summer. <laughs> that's right. That's Six right. months. Thank you so, so much. Let me ask you though: Do you just take any old Tom, Dick, and Harry, or are these guys getting like a special deal to be able to volunteer? Well. They look, they look like they could work the jackhammer pretty well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Man. I can I'm do excited that. excited to hear about yeah, this. Yeah, I got, I got my hours on the jackhammer. Not doing that, though. No, uh, but breaking stuff. Break old jackhammer. Yeah. Yeah. Breaking rocks. Yeah. 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 Well, I want to hear a report back when you fellas get back. We're in. Pockets full of looted stuff. <laughs> You'll come over to my house, the big triceratops <laughs> skull sitting on the on the table. <laughs> Where'd you get this? What? <laughs> <laughs> All right, th- All thanks right. so much for coming on, man. We've been looking forward to it. I appreciate Thank you. Hey, if you follow wildlife news at all, you're probably aware that the island of Maui has an incredible abundance of Axis deer, so much so that they're causing ecological damage. Well, Maui Nui venison is thinning out some of those Axis deer herds and delivering venison sticks and fresh cuts to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I venison.com. Use promo code MEATEATER for 20% off your order. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. 
And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting into go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. 